in my whole career, I'm saying there's a few where I can pick out that say, if I hadn't have been in that boat, we wouldn't have had the finish we had. And that was one of those races because we were we were looking at a sort of fourth place finish, essentially coming into the race fourth or fifth. And we said, okay, look, if, if things aren't going well, we're just going to go for home with like 7.50 to go or a K to go or something. We were like, we'll, we'll be ballsy. We'll just, we'll just go for it. And I remember getting to 500 gone. And I was like, we're going to get dumped out the back door. And we and I was like, okay, guys, I know we're not expecting this, but we're going to go for home. And they were like, okay. And we held on and got a bronze medal. Hey, what is up? Welcome to Last Show Counts. Today's guest is an Olympic silver medalist and former Oxford Blue. Please welcome Zoe de Toledo to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, it's a fun one. It's also uh, it's a double guest because we also have uh, your miniature creation with you, Connor, uh, the youngest guest <laughs> We know when he becomes a future rower slash cox, depending on the size he grows to. Yeah, uh, that we'll be able to say we had him here first, <laughs> first, first live interview. <laughs> Ready? Uh, yeah, no, another awesome one. Obviously, you know, uh, Olympian, uh, a medalist, a um, uh, bunch of other things. I'll go down the list in a in a minute. But um, yeah, no, nah, again, like just a super easy one. Also easy that you live in Oxford, so, yeah. so that made sense. On the road. <laughs> um, and another person that we've had recommended by a previous guest, Ben Lewis, was like, you got to get Zoe on. So, yeah. Yeah, no, easy, easy one to Live do. up to the hype now. Well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's it's hard not to, you know. When, well, there we go. I'll read, I'll read some of this now and say, so Junior Worlds in 2005, bronze medal in the women's eight. <laughs> um, won Henley 2008 in the ladies' plate. It's part of the same squad, and we'll, we'll get into that. 2009, um, world champion under 23, uh, women's eight again, um, obviously all coxing. Senior Europeans, 2009, um, boat race 2012, uh, Europeans and senior worlds 2013, 2014 again, European and senior worlds, like all of these A final finishes. 2015, European and worlds A final finishes, fifth and fourth. 2016 you won the europeans um and then obviously 26 olympics and the women's eight second silver medal so you've missed the fact that i've only ever done one race in a single skull and i won that so i actually have a hundred percent winning record where was that skull it was at the australian youth olympics against the men's cox that's amazing and they they were like oh well zoe has done some sculling and can stay in a boat but he's a guy, so that'll be a good race. We did a 500-meter race, and he fell in three times. And you, and you just beat him over the line. Snuck <laughs> <laughs> it over the line. <laughs> Boss, that was brilliant. So I've got a 100% winning record in a single skull, which... So you're better than any other row we've well, had exactly, on here. Yeah, yeah, thanks, yeah. <laughs> uh, So to start, like we normally do, um, obviously the, the interesting thing is is how, how you got into rowing in the first place. So I started at school, and um, my school... St. Paul's had uh, the boys' school had a great rowing program. The girls' school had a fairly mediocre rowing program, and we didn't start until J sixteen year, so only the last three years of school. And it was kind of considered a non-school sport. It was like an additional mm. thing, so the school weren't really that interested in it, which has actually changed a lot in recent years. Um, and we rowed out of the the boys' school boat club, but they kind of just racked a few boats in there. I mean, and it it was it was a fairly um, sort of low key program. Our second eight boat was a 
like 20 year old wooden M packer that it took about 15 people to carry. Like, that was the kind of level compared to the boys' school with all their M packers and all their wings and stuff. Um, and I had a friend who was a couple years older than me, and I think we'd done some a play or a drama type thing together and she was a rower and she said um she was like oh next year you could you know you could you could row and um you know you're small and you're you're kind of loud and bossy so coxing would probably you'd probably really enjoy it and was, uh, no one in my family had had anything to do with it before so I thought oh, I'd give it a go um so I went down that following year that J16 year and the whole way through the first year I would say I was probably like one of the bottom ranked coxes in the team and I did a t you know I did a little bit of racing the first race I ever did was actually rowing because I'd gone down to Kingston Head as the you know I wasn't coxing I was like I said I was the bottom but they said oh come along and see what it's like you know be around the squad and stuff so I went I went down someone didn't turn up or someone was sick at the last minute and they were like right Zoe you're gonna have to just jump into bow seat of the third eight which is obviously the bottom boat and I think I'd I'd done a few because the the boys uh, the boys school had a tank, so I'd done a few tank rowing sessions. But I think I'd actually been in a boat maybe three times rowing. And Kingston Head's really long. Yeah, it is a really long race. And I was just like, okay, well, I'll just have to do it. And the 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 coach was like, look, I don't expect you to try try hard. Just try not to catch a crab and just try and stay in time. So I just did that. I was like, okay, I'll just put put it in, take it out, just keep doing that. And it was fine, and we didn't come last. I think we came second to last. So, you know, that was my first ever race. Um, and then by the summer, the school had decided they wanted to send their first date to um, Nat Champs when it was in sort of July. Mm. And the first date Cox had some, because it was in the school holidays, so the first date Cox had some family holiday. But second they went down the list second ACOX said something else they keep going down everyone is busy everyone is away and they get to me and they're like are you free and I said yes and basically the girls in the first date taught me how to cox in probably about a week and a half and they kind of taught me the race plan we it was in Strathclyde and we we drove up there in the minibus so it was like seven hours or something they taught me the race plan in the minibus on the way up there and we went up and we won and they beat crews that had been beating them all year and you know so I think after that I became a bit of a sort of lucky talisman essentially and then I pretty much wasn't out of the, the first eight for my last two years at school um I think that's funny like um a lot of people um talk about oh you know I just I got, I got a lucky shot I got a chance someone above me was ill and I had one go in the boat yeah um, and they sort of see that as like a like a not necessarily a negative but like oh, I just got lucky and yeah that's how it always happens. you make your own luck as well to some extent you have to be there and you have to be ready to yeah. take advantage and it was the same in junior worlds because we, I got to my last year and um, my coach uh, was very good friends with Shep at yeah. Mosley, who was the, the chief coach for juniors. And um, he sort of said uh, maybe October, November time, he'd said, oh, I'm thinking about sending a, a junior women's eight this year. We haven't sent one in. I think it was five or six years they hadn't sent one. They'd never meddled in the event. And um, and he said, oh, does anyone have any coxes? And obviously he must have been having this conversation fairly casually with, with Rachel, my coach. And she said, oh, yeah, I've, I've got one. I can bring her down and I used to go down to Molsey that was kind of I used to go down and do some rowing with their vets and things like that to try and sort of build my own skills and um I just went along really and and I got again it was kind of lucky because there were definitely better junior women's coxes out there but no one really turned up to trial and then I think by the time we got to the sort of summer selection 
maybe one or two others, but I'd been there all year and I ended up in the boat. And I mean, Eve Singfield, who I coached with at Teddy's the following oh, two years later, was a coach there. And she always used to make fun of me because she, she was saying, well, you, you were you were selected to Cox the Junior Women's Eight. You won a bronze medal, but you couldn't land on a landing stage. And I was like, yes, that is correct. I really couldn't. Um, so again, it was, to some extent, it was just... You know, I kind of chanced it and got lucky. Baptism of fire or just dealing with it. Like you said, that whole attitude of turning up to an event and having to do something completely different. Yeah. And, and that's just part of it. And I think the team mentality kind of fosters that because you're not, you don't want to let your friends down. And yes. Um, just putting yourself in uncomfortable positions, I think, is like and pretty that, key. And that's one of the things that when I talk to coxes now and they say, oh, what's the, you know, what's the one thing you did when you were learning and not just learning the whole way through was, if I got offered an opportunity to cox a boat, I'd take it if mm. I could. And that was, and I did that the whole way through. I mean, I think in 2016, maybe 2015 or 2016, so either Olympic year or the Olympic qualification year, I went, I was coxing like Newcastle University who needed a spare at the Met Regatta because someone asked me and I, I had the availability to, and you always learn something. You know, even if you're coxing novices, you always learn something and being with different teams and being with different coaches, you're going to get a different perspective on mm. things. So I, you know, that's what I always say to the the coxes that I talk to now, is especially at the beginning, but really the whole way through your career. If you get a chance to do something, just give it a go. And you know, like I said, I used to go and um, spend a lot of time with the vets at Molsey, and they were great because they were desperate for coxes, mm. so they were always really happy that you were there. But they were very. Um, honest with their feedback and they were pleasant about it but they would always give me useful things to work on and they were very nice and they'd always you know take me for breakfast afterwards and whatever and say you know oh, this was good and you could do this and that kind of stuff so it was just an amazing learning opportunity it with no pressure on it as well you know there's yeah. nothing for me to lose in that situation that's awesome so you're still doing that while you're at school yeah so that so i was doing it at school and that was the thing because my my coaches were, were all mulsy they'd kind of take me down there and and actually i think um, I mean, they put me in any boat, and there was there was one day. I think it was in maybe my J eighteen year um, when they needed a sub for their first date, their head of the river first date that was training, and it was it was all the Olympians. It was like Andy Hodge and all those guys, and there was a they were doing pieces with a sort of old boys crew, but again, old boys all Olympians, yeah. which. Adrian Ellison was coxing, who was the cox of the 84, um, Steve Redgrave's gold medal um, cox straw. And they just stuck me in this boat. And I was like the 17-year-old girl who didn't really know what I was doing. And they were like, right, off you go, you know, side-by-side -side pieces down at Molsey, which was a stretch I knew a bit, but obviously I wasn't super comfortable with. And I was like, okay, well, just have to make this work. And again, they were they were hard, hard, hard on me, but they were great and they taught me a lot. So yeah. it was just, you just have to, Kind of get in these boats and hope for the best. Really. Were you aware of who a lot of those people were? Oh at yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, yeah. and I think the only what the only time I got in a boat and I was more kind of um, awed was the following year. So my first year out of juniors, um, I took a year out to retake some of my A levels. Got exactly the same results, so it was a complete waste of time. And just just doing some bits of rowing where I could, coaching, and um, I got asked to cox a crew for the women's head that was like the squad composite basically mm -hmm. um because the current cox caroline was coxing the thames crew which was essentially the sweep the that was where um gd women's sweep were based at pre-cabisham 
and um and I sat down in the boat on the first day and Catherine Granger was stroking it. I remember getting into the boat on the tide and being like, okay, that's Catherine Granger. I don't really know what I'm doing here. I need to just pull myself together. Um, yeah, so I think that was the only other time I was a bit like, oh God, what am I, what am I doing? Is this okay? Absolutely, that um, yeah. would freak it was anyone amazing. out. Yeah. But and again, she was great, so... Yeah. And there's just it just shows how hard landing a boat can be and like how important it is to you know like well something like the women's head where there's actually like and we started because we were a composite we started with the new starters we started like 150th then we had to sort of weave our way through novice cruise and we we won um and it was like it was amazing it was such a great race but it was and Miles or Thomas the coach was really hard on me he 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 gave no shits that I was 18 and. Like didn't really know what was going on, and the tideway was where I learned to row, so I was comfortable on the on the stretch. But um, you know, he was he was really hard on me, and he really made me work. You know, he made me work hard. So, um, but yeah, it's it's a fine line, isn't it? Like you do want honest feedback, but there's a, there's a different ways that it can be given. I struggle at times at Leander when it uh, cruise. No offense to Chrissy to to name her out, but you know some of the boys were pretty harsh, and she would get yeah. very upset by it. And I think I think fair, fair I enough, think, yeah. they weren't they weren't really. Um, packaging their their feedback yeah. in the right way at times, and this is why I'm so keen now to work with coxes, coaches, rowers about developing coxes because I think you see people give feedback to a cox in a way that they never would to a rower. Mm. You know, and coxes get this like no one will say anything to them for months, and then suddenly they'll get sat down with a feedback form in front of them, and you did this wrong. Do you remember three months ago when you crashed into something? Like, can you imagine coaching a rower like that? Can you imagine me being like? Oh, Tom, yeah, do you remember two weeks ago you weren't really putting your blade in the water? Like, yeah. And you call that crap. And you call that crap. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And um, so a lot of what I talk about is about, you know, giving actionable feedback. Mm. Um, and this was something actually we worked on a lot in our, I'm jumping forward a lot, but our 2016 our Olympic crew was about, A, the, um, you know, it was feedback to me, but also the way we talked to each other was every every piece of feedback you had to give something a, a way of fixing it essentially so yeah, yeah, yeah. it was never just oh the finishes are shit it was yeah. the finishes are shit so let's try doing this yeah. and we made we did a lot of work on making our communication clear and concise which obviously from a cox's perspective is really important but we also did it with the rowers so about how we communicated and one of the sessions that i used to hate but was really good for us was this session that we did which was nine Nine by 500, is it 250? I can't actually remember now. I think it was nine by 500. And we do it at Caversham and you'd have to do 500 on, then you'd have 250 to paddle, and then you'd do the next 500. And it was all kind of race pace or that kind of, you know, race pace or above basically. And it was really annoying because from a, if you're in an eight, the, the stopping distance of the eight, like by the time you just kind of wound down, you were doing the next piece. Yeah. So you had to be so on it. And it essentially, it really forced us to, it forced all of us to be concise with our communication. And, and you know, it, you had to be, you, you didn't have time to chat about it. You had to be like, this is what I think we need to work on. And then I had to decide, you know, if there were several things, I had to then filter that and decide, right, this is the one thing we're going to do because a 500 meter piece, you only, you can only improve on one thing. You don't yeah. have time to do multiple. So I, you know, I'd have to filter it and then be like, right, okay, let's start with this. So let's work on this technical point for, for that next piece. And yeah, the session was a, was chaos always. I hated doing it. And I always used to get really annoyed because 
my old people was always like, well, if you're in a single, it stops much faster. You've got way more recovery time. And Tomo, our head coach, would always just tell me to shut up. Um, <laughs> and, and But literally, we had the same conversation every session. Uh, but it was really good for us. So it was, yeah, just... And that's how I kind of work with the coxes as well and coaches. And, you know, it's not enough to just shout at a cox because they fucked something up. Like, you have to... You have to give feedback, and and that was what my 2016 crew were really good at. They used to, that we used to. It was a conversation, yeah. and that was the thing. It was a conversation. So we'd stop at the, you know, we'd stop at turn around, and they'd say, "Oh, I really liked that call. That really worked well. Great. I know to use it again." Yeah. Or that would happen as we were rolling. Oh yeah, good call. Carry on. Or like, that didn't quite work for me. Can you think about a way to rephrase that? Yeah. And you know, it was just constant conversation. So I didn't feel like when I was getting feedback, it was aggressive and put upon, which is, I think, what you often get. You get, yeah. you just get shouted at and you do something wrong, basically. Yeah. I mean, it happens in the boat as well, whereas we'll shout out. For sure. Other, I mean, I always, one thing I try and tend to say to, to people when I'm coaching is, I don't care what you have got to say during the piece or during the rowing. And I don't care how, like, it doesn't matter how you yeah. think you're saying it. I promise you it's coming across wrong. Yeah. Because when you're out of breath and it's the middle of sess and you go... But you made it. Yeah. Like, it's going to sound, yeah. it's not going to come across in the right way. Yeah. Um, but the other point, I guess, yeah, it's like, it's it's really easy to bring criticism with no solution. Um, and it's quite hollow. So yeah. it's interesting what you say. Like, if you want to bring something, well, what do you want it to do? What do you want to do? And we, I always talk about the shit sandwich. So you say something yeah. nice and then you give, so you say, oh, I really thought your catches were better today. However, I think you also need to work on this. But, you, you know, I think that's something that we can work on together. So you say something, you say your nice thing, your feedback, and then your nice thing again to finish it off. And I do that in my everyday life as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we're simple creatures as humans, really. It's yeah. such a different response. Oh, compliment. Yes. Oh, and now I'll happily take, take whatever feedback, you have to yeah. say to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also like really easy to like take good coxing for granted. Personally. Yeah. You know, if they do, if the cox is doing, doing their job well, you, you feel like you probably don't need to like over compliment or anything but as soon as there's like one thing that you, they could improve on this it's bam, really immediately easy, yeah. with the yeah, yeah just like do this differently and yeah. I've, i mean i'm not a rower by any stretch of the imagination you have the perfect record in a single skull i have the perfect yeah. record in a, that's true so let's just and i did also do i mean i did some rowing we did this like charity expedition in zambia a few years ago and i rode in that and um, we rode like 900k over four weeks in these big tub things so i can stay in the boat that's new uh ollie cook's dad yes tim yeah it was great but i have been in boats once in a while with coxes you know just to kind of fill in or Mm. as a coach or whatever and when a bad coxing is really it grates on you like it really does grate on you and it's difficult not to get kind of annoyed by it yeah you have to you know like i I say you have to think about how you coach a rower and i mean i've had coaches who've like there's a classic Andy Nelder um, one of him just saying no so every time well, I think it was someone's catches they were working on every straight through spike no Blake said no Blake said no then I think at one point he went you're just giving me a whole bag of no here and then no no that used to be a little Chris Collerton trick as well <laughs> I've heard that enough times <laughs> but me personally no <laughs> I went through one winter I was in the pair with Webby and I, I honestly like I couldn't believe how Ali read my pair's part I just doubt with the fact that Chris was just cut, like just all yeah. like he didn't get spoken to or talked to or whatever. It was just like <laughs> work on Tom because he's absolutely useless. Let's see if we can get him somewhere. And he's too big to be that useless. Yeah, and, I, and I, well, that's what got me to to under twenty threes. I think that year, 
and with a bit of help from Chris. Whole bag of nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> well, the other one I think I told already, but it's quite funny. Was uh, you'd be on the coming up on the other side of the river, and like Chris would shout stuff at us sometimes. And one time we just we just both of us just hit like. And I'm like, Webby, did you get that? And he's like, No, I didn't get it. Like, what should we do? Let's pull harder. <laughs> so we pull harder, and then three strokes later. Good <laughs> We're like, oh, yeah, it worked. We did it. <laughs> if in doubt, pull up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's a good one. Uh, so, so you say you sort of fell into junior worlds, although I think you're putting yourself down a little by that by that point. But is that that's your final year at school? Mm, yeah. So then, so then finishing school, what you did next? Were Sorry. you thinking I want to keep doing this? Yes, yeah. I was, and I think at that point, so I was trying to balance academics with um, and finding a, a university program I wanted to do um, and could get into um, with the rowing stuff. So I kind of started ma- I made some bad mistakes I made some bad decisions I made some good decisions but I had a place up at I had a place at Edinburgh and I had a place at Durham but it wasn't on the main campus it was on their Stockton campus and I kind of decided that I wanted to be nearer here because Caversham was just coming into mm. it was just it just I mean I, I was one of the first people there actually it was just starting up so I wanted to be down here which obviously nowadays you know, people are going off to America and stuff. But at that time, especially for the Coxes, it felt like you needed to be there and you needed to be turning up and you needed to be seen. Plus, any chance to not go to Stockton is a good chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I had a... Well, I didn't have a place at Reading, but um, Will Rand, who was the head coach there, was kind of fairly convinced that I could get a place through clearing if I wanted to. Um, so that was an option. But Reading, at the time... It was it was probably going to be a case of if I went to Reading, I'd probably do things like butts with them, but row at Leander. Mm. Um, and then I started looking at Brooks. And at the time, Brooks was not what it is now, but it was still a, a, an incredible program. It was still one of the best university programs. It just wasn't what it is now, which is like a, a league above. Um, I started looking at Brooks and Richard Spratley basically said, yeah, 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 it's fine. Oh, God, this is awful. Just He was like, just get, you can just apply onto any degree you can get onto and then you can switch to what you want to do when you get here. And obviously, naively, I was like, sure, that sounds like a good idea. Um, And I thought, well, Brooks is the right, you know, it's a good place for me in terms of the, the rowing. Um, obviously, it's nearby, etc. So I applied onto whatever. He was like, whatever has a place and you can get onto. And so there was a course that was exercise- health and nutrition or something it was a, a sort of sports science type thing i was like okay i can get onto that i wanted to do psychology um i can get onto that so i got into it and i realized that obviously spratley was talking absolute shit you can't just change as soon as you turn up um so i ended up doing this degree for the, for the first year they said you can change in your second year but i ended up having to do because it was it, brooks was more of a modular course so you had core modules which you had to do for the degree and then ones you could pick and I ended up having to do basically the core modules for the course I was on and the core modules for psychology so that I could switch into it in my second year. Um, so it was just it was just total chaos. And the course I was on was not stuff I was interested in. So I was like, just didn't want to be doing any of it. Um, and on the rowing side, I kind of enjoyed it. I was getting into it, but I found that 
And I think it's totally different now. And I kind of wish I could go again with what they're doing now. Mm. But I felt like whether this was true or not, my development wasn't their priority, which it probably wasn't. But it felt like their priority was using me always to service provision to keep, you know, their boats rolling. So it was things like, I mean, whenever we did big events, you know, I'd get bumped down for people like Caroline O'Connor who'd come back who's in the squad, which was kind of understandable, but I still found frustrating. Um, I felt like, I think there was one, I think I was invited to like final trials or something and they decided it'd be better for me to stay at Brooks copsing the novices rather than going, you know, so it was stuff like that that just felt like they weren't really putting my development at the forefront. And it might have just been me being sensitive, but I decided after the first year there to look at other options and contacted Mark Bounce at Leander. Yeah. And um and he said, you know, our job is to get he said, our job here at Leander is to win Henry medals and to get people into the international team. So if you want to do those two things, come here and we'll help you. Um so in my from my second and third years at Brooks, I didn't row with them anymore. I um, was was moving over to Leander. I said. I think that kind of ties in with what we've heard from other Brooks athletes is that Brooks is all about the team mentality. Yeah. It fosters the team mentality, and that's how they are have become so successful. I'm sure other things have come come in place. Um, but also, yeah, like for me around that time, because I, I went to Leander in '08, like the guys who went to Brooks, like um, Scott Durant and Matt Tarrant, like they were already great rowers. Mm. They'd already made GB at junior level. And then Brooks like fostered this mentality and taught them how to row like men. Whereas like, I kind of probably had more of the mental toughness, but I wasn't a very good rower. Yeah. So Leander was like the place where I was going to kind of learn how to row. So I don't think it's like Oxford Brooks is an incredible system. Mm. It's not for everyone, but yeah. nowhere is. So yeah, but like you said, it's... It's and Leander worked for me perfectly. It was what I needed. So, yeah. so the, was your yeah. was your first year was oh seven oh eight? Was that your first year? Yeah. So yeah. So, same. so we're doing yeah. it at the same time. Yeah, because yeah. I turned up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I did a year at Brooks and then and then went from the start in September seven. So how did you find that? Um, I mean, it was very different, obviously, and I was still really young. I think that's the thing. Like two thousand eight at Henley, I would have been twenty. Not quite twenty one. Yeah. Um and a lot of the guys I was rowing with were, you know, the Danny Merritt's who'd won a gazillion Henley medals, yeah. Clive and people like that. So really experienced guys who had been around a long time and had done a lot of stuff. Um so it was quite a steep sort of learning curve. And I think again, there were a lot of bits that went right and bits that went wrong. I mean, that crash I when I crashed that eight into the barge, you wouldn't have been in that boat. Um, uh, uh, no, it was at home. It was at home. It was at, at Henley, uh, at our yeah. Henley stretch yeah. before Henley. It was like oh, yeah, it was like springtime. Yeah, it was like well, he, not as bad as I thought. That was the weird thing. So it was springtime, and I'd done, you know, I'd been doing all right, and I'd I was pretty sure I was going to get that ladies' plate eight. Yeah, but we had a boat that went out. It was just one of those weird sort of um, mornings. It was maybe like May or something that kind of time. Um, and we had this weird composite boat that was like Grand Eight guys, ladies play eight guys. I think Al Hethcote was in the boat, who was an international who had an injury, and yeah. he ends up going to Beijing that year. But I think he was doing some training with us while he was recovering or something. It's like a really weird mix of guys. Um, 
And we were doing a piece upstream from the island up. Um, and it was uh, a quiet, like Wednesday or something, you know, at 8.30. Like, no, who's out at that time of day? And Chris Colleton was coaching and he was on the bike. And we were down at the island and we were doing, I think it was a 2K piece. And we kind of, I had to look around, couldn't see anything. It's like, oh, it's a Wednesday at 8.30, there's no one here. And I'm going to stay right by the bank. There's not going to be anyone there anyway. And started this piece and we were going really fast. Like the times were coming up and I was like, this is insane speed for sort of upstream. I think it was a rate cap. I mean, I think it was like a 30, 32, that kind of rate capped piece. It was like insanely quick. And we're like chugging along, chugging along. And obviously I'm five foot one on a good day if I've been hanging upside down by my ankles overnight to stretch me. And like, I think it was someone like, someone like George Lawton was sitting, someone, I mean, all of you guys are big. Like I can't see what's directly in front of me is basically what I'm saying here. And we're going along, going along. And suddenly I kind of noticed out the corner of my eye, like just a little bit of disrupted water in front of me. I was obviously in my like more coxing position. And I kind of popped up and there was a, a narrowboat right in front of us, traveling in the same direction. So it obviously hadn't seen us. And I just was like, oh, fuck, like hold it up. And we smashed into it. And it was a, a wing-rigged M-packer that was really new, like really, really new. I think it had been used a handful of times, like top of the range, the whole thing. And we it ripped... I think it ripped the two seat rigger like completely off the boat, and it was it was um, it was a manchild who was sat in that seat, and it like ripped the rigger just off the boat, and then it's no he was at four sorry so two two rigger was gone, and then it smashed into his backstay at four and took off the backstay and like bent the rigger completely out of shape but his rigger kind of hung on yeah um and Andrew Dax was sat at bow and was like traumatized by this because he you know if he'd hit it bow on he probably would have been quite seriously injured i think the only injury was that essentially as the two blade flew out it hit clive in the back because he was sat at three the blade like floats down the river and i managed to grab it as we go past and we we're all kind of sitting there and we're like oh my god what just happened it's like properly everyone was quite traumatized with <laughs> the man shot and i think chris was like oh my god oh my god like get back to the boathouse get back to the boathouse and Manchild just looks at his rigger and looks at Chris and goes, oh, mate, I think my pitch is out. <laughs> oh, my God, what's happening? And we got back up, we got in, and I remember, and I think someone, one of the guys, I think it might have been Clive, was like, just go home. Like, I was really shaken. Yeah. It's like, just go home. And I got a call from Banksy later that day, and I was like, this is him telling me not to come back. He's going to, like, he's going to just be like, I never want you down here again. Pick up the phone. And he starts kind of ranting. I was like, oh, God. And he's like, I don't understand what happened. I don't understand how Chris Colleton could have just watched you row into a barge and not said anything. And I was like, oh, I'm not getting shouted at. This is surprising. And he basically blamed Chris. That's good. But then the worst bit was this boat they kept using as the first date boat. I think the Grand Date rode in it. They got new riggers and stuff. But I think it was like, I think because of the the force that we hit it with, it actually twisted the shells. Uh And I swear, like, that boat was never the same again. So speaking of hitting things that you can't see, <laughs> speaking of hitting things that you can't see, um, it was also I, I was also f- found myself in a in a similar situation before Henley, probably around May time. We're doing uh, 
A250s to just start practice and I was steering a quad. Mm. So I was in the battle suit just before Henley 2016. And um, we were just doing them in the first 250 in and around the island. So we'd do the 250, spin around the island, then come back and then just do it again. And then I've been complaining that the steering in the boat has been jammed for weeks and no one would listen to me. I, t- I said to my coach at the time, hey, there's something wrong with this steering. My foot is like this. And it's still not going the right way. Until eventually that day, uh, obviously when we got up to like rate 44, going full speed quad, it's a really fast boat. And like obviously junior, so we're not technically all super lean or anything like this. So it's quite a big boat, quite a lot of speed going on there. And the coach says that she um, she kept shouting at me to, to turn around and watch watch out for the island, but I did not hear any of this because we were doing flat out pieces. And then I'm like, I I, I think to myself like, oh, I haven't turned around for a few strokes. Let me let me just go and check that we're going that we're going straight because some, something's off. Like the bank's getting away. Yeah, <laughs> the bank's getting away from me a little bit too much. Turn around. And I was like, oh, oh, easy. And then we just. It hit the Temple Island, which um, I actually did go on like weather.co.uk and check the seismic movements of the river that day. It did it didn't move a few meters <laughs> <laughs> closer to the bank, so it made me hear. But then, yeah, I had a, I've also had that I had to have that chat with Banks. Yeah. Well, I, I thought he was just going to be like, yeah, do you not come do back? Do come back here? No, but uh, so that was like the first time. I didn't eat anything three days. I was that like Chromatized, shook yeah. and stressed and yeah. like. Luckily, nothing too bad happened to any of the athletes, but the boat basically split in half. We had to like dock and then we had to carry it from like the island all the way back to the club. Basically, basically, yeah. And there was a 2015 Empacker and it was, and that was in 2016. Yeah. I think you can, like most of the time when you're rowing, you can, you don't have to think about thing that at all. And then something happens and you're like, oh, I'm just sat in a piece of fiberglass. Yeah. Like, nothing is going to protect me if no. it goes wrong. And I think that's something that I always took very seriously as a cops was things like weather and that kind of stuff. And I think I was kind of aware of, I, I'd spoken to um, a girl who was coxing um, the crew, the Oxford Lightweights crew out on training camp when Leo Blockley drowned. And um, she said, you know, there was a whole inquest and she was like, it was deemed not to be my fault, but I'll always feel responsible. And so I always used to take that very, very seriously, like if the weather was bad and stuff, and I would happily stand up to a coach and refuse to go out, basically, because I kind of had this idea that it was all on my, you know, it's good. this was my responsibility, I think it's basically. important, and I think when people complain about safety, um, for example, I've been involved in the Oxford College, uh, um, you know, constantly complaining about too many rules, too many of this, too many of that. And it's like, yeah, but it's because you don't remember like it's the things the rules have worked so well yeah but it's been so long yeah. since a boat has broken up and nine people have fallen in the water exactly yeah or well, someone's got smacked in the back or, yeah. which obviously happens at bumps. yeah so yeah. actually you having the ability to sit there and go well oh, okay, nothing goes wrong yeah. like because they're there yeah yeah and i'd much rather like not have a safety incident because it it, it can be pretty scary like yeah. and, and and also like the banter that you get you just oh, get given from everyone the next day is like oh yeah just and the cost i mean you forget <laughs> when you're just taking these boats out, how much they cost. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is tens of thousands of pounds yeah, yeah. of equipment. I was fully surprised they let me race at Henley that year, yeah. but I was I was very, very glad. I was still steering at Henley, so they didn't take the steer off me. But they, did, but they, they, did, they did give us a different boat, and then the steering was all right in that one, so yeah. I didn't hit anything else. You won't be the first or the last to have done it. No. I once, the only, we once had like a, there was a really bad storm out in 
and by Nerdless, and we said we didn't want to go out, and Chris Collett made us go out. But then there was another time we were being coached by Beachy, and we were out on the water before it came in. He could roll in real quick, couldn't he? Yes. And I was, we're rowing the racing way, so rowing towards the finish. Beach is on the launch there. Yeah. I'm sat rowing, and we can kind of, I can kind of see it's coming in, but then the flash from behind me, mm. the loudest crack I've ever heard. And I just see Beachy in the launch go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't say anything to us. He just, He's he like, just starts I am flying out of in. Here. And without anyone talking, yeah. everyone on my side just jacks yeah. in, slokes I pause around. We're like, well, you that just that, hit the lake. You realize how like, exposed you are. Yeah. That's the thing. Berezi was like that as well. It, it was the same kind of thing. You'd get these massive storms just roll in and they'd come out of nowhere. Yeah. And you'd be like, ah, panic. That's yeah. pretty much. Like when people ask me, like, oh, you know, well, when the weather's really bad, do you not go rowing? Like, no, like you go rowing in yeah. minus five, you go rowing in snow, in sleet, in wind, in everything. Sometimes, Sometimes. it's awful. Yeah. But lightning? No, we don't That's do lightning. That's it, yeah. 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 That's the bottom line. Uh, so, like, I guess, yeah, the rest of, the, the rest of 2008, like, in that lady's plate, like, mm. personally, for me, it's interesting to hear another perspective on yeah. that year and how it went and how you found it. Ben Lewis, Ben Lewis, sorry, Ben Lewis said it was, like, end of an era for Leander at that point. Did it, what did it feel like to be part of that? The golden era. I mean, yeah. we didn't know that at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was the, that was the thing. We didn't recognize that. And Leander on such a roll, you just felt like you were part of this mm. massive machine, basically. Um, but that year was so much fun because we had, I mean, a, I feel like for us in the ladies' plate eight, we had the perfect situation because when you're training in an eight, you want another eight to race against from your club. Like, and that's why, you know, the best crews often have a great reserve crew. Um, and we were in the middle because we had the grand eight who were sometimes faster than us, sometimes not faster than us. And we had you guys who were sometimes faster than us, you know, especially over short stuff. We you know. got it right and you were having a bad day. Yeah, we exactly. So, we, heels, were, so yeah. we had the best of both worlds, yeah, basically. Yeah. But we also knew that we would beat you most of the time. Of course, we do, yeah. you know, so we kind of had this, like, just a great situation to be in. And um, I think from a coxing perspective, like, obviously we had Chrissy was in your crew who had been there for a bit longer. So she kind of showed me the Leander ropes, I guess. Yeah. And then... Um, Phelan, who cops the Grand Eight, who obviously then went on to, yeah, yeah. to um, move into the senior team the following year. And I think, you know, I was really young and I was still quite inexperienced. And looking back on it, I was listening to some of what Ben was saying. And I think looking back, back on it, a lot of what got me into that boat was the fact that, I mean, I could, other than that time when I smashed into the barge, I could keep the boat safe. I could roughly steer in a straight line. I was probably not going to do anything completely bizarre. I could deal with the banter most of the time. Yeah. Probably um, better than Chrissy. Yeah. And probably in a way better than someone like Phelan could have done, I think. I kind of fitted into their chat, essentially. Um, and I was going to listen to what Danny Marrett told me to do because he was sat at seven and this man has won a million Henry medals. And if Danny Marrett tells you to do something in the middle of a Henry race, you're like, this guy is one. I think like Steve Redgrave was one of the only people in won more medals than him. It was ludicrous. Rose got a lot, but I think that Ben said he's on nine now. Something so, like that, yeah. So I think the plate would have been like maybe his eighth. He had one more yeah. Than that, yeah. And so I was I was young and inexperienced enough to do what I was told, but I could also hold hold up, I guess, to their chat. Um, so I think it was, a lot of it was less, I mean, you know, I think I was technically competent, but it was less about my technical ability and more about the fact that I fitted into the crew, essentially. Um, but it was just, 
such an amazing position to suddenly find myself in because I was still young and inexperienced and suddenly, you know, the ladies play, the level of competition is amazing. I mean, yeah. winning the Thames Cup, you, as you well know, the level of competition is amazing. So to suddenly find myself in that kind of level of rowing and, you know, I think it would probably be fair to say that that ladies play eight, I mean, it was the fastest British eight at the time. There was no, the only other British eight, the other only other club eight that beat us, club eight that beat us was our own grand eight. Yeah. Um, which was a national team. Which was essentially a national team kind of development boat. Yeah. I generally think for the most years, the ladies plays, you win that, you pretty much the fastest club boat on earth. Yeah. You know, if you're going to be, and you can whoever probably... comes over from America, exactly. it's going to be yeah. number one from America, you'll get someone from Europe if yeah. you can do them. And we got, I think, the Dutch crew that we beat in yeah. the final was a sort of under 23-ish. So you, wow. you kind of, you often, you know, that ladies play age to be able to go and at least medal in an under 23 event as well, yeah. essentially. And I think a good one could probably go and hold its own at a, a World Cup, for example, yeah, not yeah. necessarily World Champs. But um, so they were really quick, and um, and I remember feeling very fortunate to have kind of landed on my feet with this. Um, and it was essentially just about picking up as much as I could and like getting as much out of the experience as as I thought I could soak in, essentially. Um, but it was just. Uh, it was just really fun. Mm. Like we just had a lot of fun. I mean, obviously there were bumps. I know Ben Lewis talked about that time in Banyolas when um, everyone went out and Clive and I had an absolute hissy fit about it. So there were, you know, there were difficult moments and there were difficult characters, but on the whole, there was just a lot of laughter and a lot of really shit chat. And it was just a really enjoyable experience. Yeah. I mean, Ben telling that story of having to answer to uh, the coaches the next day asking him if he went out and he was like, yes. And they're like, why? I thought it would be better for the crew if I did. I looked up. Well, and, and I'd be like, sure, Ben, you went out to look after them. Like, um, but yeah. So I, the winter camp or the summer? No, it was the summer camp. Yeah. 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 So I, so Clive and I were like, what the actual hell? Like, we've got Henley in a few weeks. This is not how we should be sort of that, doing uh, things essentially that camp was probably still one of the best of my life like we had three eights we had Al Sinclair's visitors four uh with like Matt Steeds was in that as well and it was just like the numbers it was, was great everyone had, the weather it, was good it was a proper like apart from a few of the grand guys almost everyone had been there all year yeah training together all year there wasn't like a bunch of people coming back with different squads like and then obviously both eights went on went on one and yeah. that was the night out to remember Rem I mean I don't remember it I feel like I remember, but I think I just, uh, from Her the photos, <laughs> yeah, from the photos, I'm picturing it in my head. Yeah. I remember waking up the morning of the final because we'd been put up in a, because I used to, I was, I was living in Oxford because I was studying at Brooks. And, um, and so usually when I come to Henley and, you know, if I was wanting to stay overnight, I'd stay at the club, but obviously during the regatta, no one can stay at the club. So they put us up in a house in Henley and there was another I was in a room with another Cox I think it was Courtney who wasn't racing but I think had been helping so much they'd kind of you know she was and I think she had gone out and kept going out and getting drunk and I was getting pissed off with it so I ended up the night the Saturday night because I was like she's going to go out and do the same thing I ended up dragging my mattress into the room where Clive was sleeping and I think he was on a sofa bed basically so it was Clive was on a sofa bed and I'd like dra dra dragged my mattress into the corner of his room. So I was sleeping there. I remember waking up the morning and I'd never felt so nervous 
I was just like, I could feel my stomach was just like ripped into pieces. And I think I remember saying something to Clive being like, I feel really nervous. He's like, don't worry, it's fine. I'm really nervous as well. I was like, okay, okay, okay. And Clive's obviously this like big guy, Marine, you know, you wouldn't expect him to say that. I don't know whether he did or not, but whether he just said it to make me feel better. And then we went out to race and um, we got out there and the weather was fine and it was like quite warm. We were like, okay, this is all right. And um, I was wearing an all-in-one and one of those like bin bag thin splash tops. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is fine. It's summer. It's July, much like a day like today. I shouldn't have trusted this. And we went up to warm up and we were, the race before us was on the start. And so we were just kind of in that bit just behind the start, like ready to go. And suddenly the heavens opened and it was again like thunder, lightning, rain, the whole thing. And they delayed, didn't they? And they delayed and they were like, everyone's got to get off the water. And yeah. it's like a little pontoon there. And we kind of managed to pull the boat in there. We all got out of the boat and there was a tent up at the start. And they said, oh, go and sit in there and wait it out. And then um, obviously we were all soaked. Mm. And then they said, okay, fine. Like it wasn't a massive delay. It was maybe 20, 30 minutes or something. And then they said, okay, right. But we're ready to go back out there. You've got 20 minutes to warm up again or 15 minutes to warm up again. And then you're going to race. And we were like, right. And obviously we went out there and I'm in a now soaking wet all in one and this bin bag thin splashed up. And obviously as the guys are warming up, I'm just getting colder and colder and colder and colder. Yeah. And afterwards, Rich Francis, who was sat at strokes, like, I could see your lips turning blue. And someone, I think it was Glyde, was like, yeah, I could hear your teeth chattering over the, um, the microphone. And I remember we got onto the start and I just forgot it all. It was like in the race. Um, and the race was just chaos. Like, I don't think we went below 39 and a half the whole time. And it was Danny Marrett was sat at seven. And he just kept going, another 10 on the legs. Well, I'd be like, okay, 10 on the legs. And then... 10 strokes later, another 10 on the leg. We just like <laughs> carried on doing that the whole way down and got to the end, one like amazing moment. And then about 30 seconds later, I became really acutely aware of how cold I was. And I was just like, oh my God. I, and we got to the landing stage and the boys were like, we were going to throw you in. But then we decided that actually you just needed a hot shower. Um, it was just, yeah, it was such a weird day. It was incredible. It's one thing I say to the rowers, like when they, if someone gets a bit, pissy with the cops or something i'll be like do you remember at the start of the session when you were really cold that's the most warm that person has been today yeah so give them a break because yeah. <laughs> they you get warmer as an athlete and you're fine yeah and the cocks just gets colder and colder, and more and colder. yeah yeah especially when you're on somewhere like the tideway used to hate rowing on the tideway in cops fours because you'd be lying there and you'd see the wave coming towards you and be like that's going to be on me in a second i'm going to be sitting in a pool of Tideway water for the next 45 minutes. And you just got three seconds of oh, anticipation. Yeah, exactly. The anticipation's even worse. So yeah, <laughs> it's just miserable. So then moving on to, to 2009, so under 23s. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that's when we got to talk about because you always have to talk about the wins. How how was that um, in that year in general? Were you sort of confident on your position? Was it difficult? So I was fairly confident i think i'd been hanging around the most and that's often the way it was with coxes i think it's changed a lot in the last few years they're more structured about how they select their coxes and things but i think at the time it was kind of a showing face situation yeah who wants it who wants it yeah. who's there the most and it was convenient you know i was right down the road and all the rest of it and so i've been hanging around i think we'd done some development crews i think we raced in a women's eight yeah, we, we raced in a in an eight at Henley, which was a similar sort of crew to the under twenty threes. So I, I don't remember there being 
a huge amount of sort of stiff competition for the seat. Um, we went in, I mean, that's the thing with things like juniors and under 23s, you have no idea when you turn up mm. what your speed's going to be like. You know, at least at the senior level, you kind of have a bit of a clear idea with the World Cups and all this kind of stuff. You just, you don't have a clue. So we turned up and I'm not sure we realized how fast we were. You had that was my record. I mean, we had some really turning medalists. We had some turning medalists. Yeah. We had some sort of up up and coming talent. So people like Vicky Thornley, um, Emily Taylor, who ended up, I think, then going to the Worlds actually later that year as the spare. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle Vizi, who was another you know big athlete, who was kind of seen as someone who was you know going to be getting up into the team. But still, you don't know. You don't yeah. know what the Americans are going to turn up with, which is most of the issue in the women's eight. Um, you know, crew like the Romanians. So those are the kind of people who you you sort of worry about. And I think the thing is that um, the women's eight had always been, you know, the women's eight often wasn't the top crew, basically. So you didn't really know what, you know, what you were going to get. And I think coming into under 23s, that's the whole thing as a cox, I think, as well. As you, you, I'm not saying it was the best cox in the world, but you could be the best cox in the world, but your crew could be the bottom crew in the squad. Mm-hmm. Just, there's nothing you can do about it. But obviously, we had all you know. We had the good athletes. Um, I think maybe the top crew was their quad that year. The women's quad was technically was kind of the the lead women's crew, but there wasn't you know a pair of four loads of other no. boats ahead of us. And yeah, so we kind of went in not really knowing. And I think we, I think we won the the heat fairly comfortably, um, which took us straight through to the final. But we were pretty aware that the Americans who were in the other heat were going to be the ones that we needed to watch out for. We just really didn't know what their speed was like. And it was a weird, um, it was a weird regatta because there was a massive storm. Yeah. And it delayed, not our race, it delayed the rep. So we weren't in the rep, but it delayed the women's eight rep because this massive storm rolled in and it, it basically up. picked up a, a an entire um, rack of boats. Yeah. And just rolled the whole thing. And I think it only stopped because it hit like the German team van or yeah, something. Yeah, it landed on the van. It landed on the van, yeah. And so what? loads of boats were like completely total. It was the it was the cox for like freestanding rack, you know, mm. and you sort of get two mm-hmm. freestanding rack. So it was literally I think there was like eight cox for yeah. it. And some and I think it hit storm. And it definitely hit the it must the Polish or the it was one of the Europeans women's eight got hit. Yeah. I think it was the Romanians or the Poles. Some, one of those one of those crews. And the thing that was incredible about it was it showed how much rowing, even internationally, is like a community because essentially everyone, all the teams were like, right, how do we make sure everyone can race? So like our COPS 4, our men's COPS 4 got completely totaled. And yeah, I think the Australians... Yeah, so the Australians boats. had, they turned up with their whole set of boats. Yeah, that's why. Right. Yeah. So they're like, right, well, we've got our junior COPS 4 yeah. and we've got a seat, you know, we've got yeah. a training COPS 4. And then, yeah, then um, the Czechs were like, right, let's go and see what we can find. And and then I think the Romanian, again, the Romanians or the Poles, I think like their boatmen drove through the night back there yeah. to pick up a whole load of boats and then picked up a whole load of boats for other people on the way. So it was all this like, yeah. how can we just get everyone on the water in the best equipment possible? That was awesome, yeah. Um, so it was a weird, yeah, so we were like, oh, well, we're out of this because it's the rep that's been delayed. This isn't, we don't have this. So we kind of had that confidence, I think a bit of a bit of kind of cockiness about, oh, well, you know, we've not really been affected by this and our boat was fine. Um, 
And it came to the final. Honestly, I don't remember that much about it. I remember lining up on the start, and obviously we were in one of those middle lanes. And the only thing that I really remember is that the Americans who were in the lane next to us, their cops, who was the same cops, I think, who I'd raced at juniors and who had beaten us at juniors. All I can remember that the, the bow seat was this, her surname was Roddy. And all I can remember from that race was sitting there. And I think it was a bit of a crosswind. And I could just remember her going, yeah, tap it, Roddy, tap it, tap it, Roddy, Roddy, tap it, tap it, tap it, Roddy. And I was just like, oh my God, this is doing my head in as she tried to keep her boat straight. And then the race happened. And I think it was just like, I mean, I don't. I don't think we did anything spectacular. I think we just rode our race well, essentially, and we we had good speed. I don't think we did anything. We didn't have to do anything particularly out of the ordinary. The only other thing I really remember is getting into the last maybe like three, four hundred meters, and thinking we're gonna win. And I think I said something along the lines of, like, you know, we're leading this. We can do this. Keep it clean, or something like that. And and after the race. All my crew were like, yes, we understood what you were saying, which was don't fuck it up now because otherwise we're going to win this. And that was it. It was just like, just keep it clean, do what we kind of know how to do. And um, I think the Americans closed on us quite a lot in the last kind of few hundred meters, but we had enough. You can see it. We talked about this before. You can, you can, it can finish very close, but you really are in control. You yeah. You can kind of manage that. I, and I didn't feel that threatened by yeah, it. Yeah. And you get caught out, right? Like in my Olympic race. We obviously came back from last, but the Romanians nearly pipped us on the line. And I honestly wasn't really paying any attention to them. And it wasn't until like probably the last few strokes I looked over and I thought, oh shit, they are right there. So, um, you know, you can really get caught out by these things. But I think a lot watched, of the time, you know. I've watched races back like when um, uh, in the Cotswold the next year, uh, we have to halfway, we were really like, New Zealand was ahead of us. And then like my memory of the race that I have came through, through the K and I dispatched them. And it was over, you know, it was done. The race was done. <laughs> and then you watch the whole thing back and it's like, they're there the whole time. Dispatched <laughs> is like half a leg. <laughs> but it's just, I get you get a sense of the feel of the race, how quickly you came through someone. Yeah. Like there's many other factors, aren't there, than just looking at, at like what it is in front of you. And I think that's what a good cox can do, right? Because that's how you read the race and how you look. At, and you have the, that's the nice thing about a cox is you have the, um, the pleasure, I guess, to be able to actually look at the faces of the crews around you. And that was certainly our Olympic oh, race. Yeah, yeah. You know, our Olympic race, we went off. We talked all week about needing a faster start, which obviously did not pay off. But, you know, I was still like looking at our speeds. I was like, okay, we're doing all right. And we're with the Americans. And we knew they were the crew to beat. So we're like, well, if they're not a million miles ahead of us, it can't be that bad. But the Dutch and the Canadians had gone out, like, just flown out. And I remember looking at them, looking at their faces, looking at their rhythm. And hearing the way that they were talking to each other and hearing the tones of how they were shouting to each other. And I I just looked at them and I was like, well, neither of those is sustainable. Like neither of those, they may be ahead now, but they're not going to be ahead. So I'm not going to worry about them. And the cruise I was worried about was the Americans, actually the Kiwis. And um, like I said, I kind of <laughs> just forgotten about the Romanians who nearly snuck up on us. But, um, you know, you get that, you get that ability to actually not just kind of you know, all those things that you're talking about, like yeah. what speed are we going, what speed are they going, but actually be able to literally look at them and think, well, you can see that that rhythm is sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. You can see the pain on their faces. You can you can hear that the way they're talking to each other isn't positive. These guys, you know, they don't think they can do it. So, yeah, I think um, I think it's it's an it's one of those extra, like, coxing skills, essentially. I've always thought it interesting to see um, 
or to ask Cox is like how much you're listening to what other Cox are mm. doing. I think specifically Henley, mm. uh, you can quite often hear it. And funny enough, again, I've talked about this before, but in the, in the Thames Cup here, we 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 sort of bet on the crew listening to us. And yeah. we would call a fake 10 before we yeah. then call a big 10. They, they would feel like they held the push really well. Then you put the 10 in. So you be loud you like, on purpose yeah, yeah. and you can kind of... Playing the psychological game. Yeah, yeah. It depends. I think, I mean, I think you try to, but often I'm talking so much and so loudly that I don't hear much else. I think the only ones that I really remember is actually the year that we went to Junior Worlds, we went and raced at Nat Champs. And because we were a junior, we weren't officially selected, but we were essentially a Junior Worlds crew, they told us we had to race in senior women's eights, which is fair enough, right? Like there's no point in us racing junior women's eights. So we were racing in senior women's eights. And the crew that we had, we kind of knew with the, the, the crew were a Thames crew and Thames at the time were the was the center for women's sweep rowing and essentially this crew had they just won the Remenham at Henley um and they were all the squad all the girls who hadn't quite made the squad so they were essentially a development kind of yeah. group and obviously they'd won the Remenham which was they'd had an amazing race there and I think they had then basically been on the piss for the last two weeks so I don't think they were taking that champs super seriously I think they thought they were going to win this race basically and we raced them in the heat. And I remember we were we were not really pushing them. We were kind of maybe, we were in touch, but we weren't really challenging them. And I remember hearing their cox, who was really good. And I heard her say, I think she said something like, oh yeah, Thames, this is our day. This is our day, Thames. And I was a bit like, I was a bit bolshy for a heat, but all right, whatever, okay. And obviously, we had only been together for a couple of weeks, so our learning curve was really steep, and we were picking up the whole time. And we went into the final, having kind of changed up how we were thinking, like different plans, the whole lot. And we found ourselves leading this this tennis group. And I remember thinking about that call. I was like, and I made a call that was something basically like, and we were racing as Nautilus, which was the GB. You know, I was like, right, Nautilus, this is it. This is our day. This is our day, Nautilus. And the crew, I, you know, because we kind of talked about that. And I think, and we won, we beat them. And it was, it was a, I mean, like I say, I don't think they were taking that champ super seriously. But for us, it's that junior crew. We were like, Big really set us on the, you know, on the right track. And um, actually one of the, the crew from that Thames boat coached me a few years later, Bumble, and became a fr- really good friend. And she was just like, oh, man, we were so bitter that you beat us. We like, couldn't believe we'd been beaten by a bunch of schoolgirls, basically. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, that that was one one of the only times I can really remember. I mean, I'm sure I was listening, but I don't remember any particular yeah. time like when you I said, like, used it so much. I mean, other countries going to be in other languages. So a lot of it's just tone, volume, like not specifically yeah. like words. Yeah kind of picking up the vibe of it yeah and plus if you're concentrating too much what other people are doing you're going to lose yourself you so yeah what's going it's on in your more of an afterthought I yeah think. yeah so coming off um under 23 worlds win then obviously sort of feeling like you've set set your place um with the henley win as well um what were you doing outside of rowing so from that time i'm still so i was finishing at brook i was finishing at brook so 2009 would have been the end of my undergrad degree um and then I was feeling confident and I thought, oh, well, maybe I can make the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, London Olympics coming up in a few years. So I kind of planned to take the following year to 
to just row. Well, row and try and make some money to be able to keep rowing. So I was doing some coaching and I was working at Leander, which was the worst job I've ever had. Hey, um, I used to do that Oh job. my God, I hated it so much. Um, <laughs> because waitressing at Leander was just awful. Because I used to go in there and the days I liked was when I was on crew. So if I'm serving the crew food, I was like, this is great. This is fun. I can do this. It was the days when you're stuck there and there's one table in for dinner and it's a bunch of old white men who were sat there and like, and any of the boys who who were, who were doing the same job, because you know a bunch of us used to do this. Yeah, they'd always be like, "Oh, tell me about what rowing you're doing." Obviously, I'm a little girl, so they assume that I have nothing to do with rowing, or you know, I'm just some chick that they picked up from Henley or whatever. I just used to hate it. No one ever used to tip because I don't know these people don't tip, <laughs> or it would be, and you never knew what you were getting. So we, you know, you'd have these shifts. It was like, "Oh, your shift today is two p.m. till close." You know, if there's one table of guys in for dinner, close could mean eight p.m. Or there could be a wedding and clothes could mean like 3 a.m. after you've tidied up. And it's just, I hated it. It was awful. Hated that job. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, used, I, used, I used to hate working at, in the front of house, but I, then I very quickly switched to the kitchen. And working in the kitchen was yeah. great because I had unlimited Leander food supply. Yes. And I loved being in the kitchen. And actually, Scott Wallace, who was the head chef at the time, Shout he, out. took me under his wing a bit and used to like, and he knew I liked to cook and stuff. So he used to show me stuff and he'd save me good food and all that kind of stuff. So I loved being... In the kitchen, but yeah. the front, oh, it was awful. Scott's um, a legend. Yeah, great yeah. guy. Um, so I was doing that. I was doing some coaching. I was doing the rowing. I very quickly realized that there was no way I was going to make the national team. That wasn't going to happen. Um, so I was just kind of like, what do I do next? So I think I was, I, I knew that I'd wanted to do the boat race. So I spent a lot of the year trying to work out if I could get, get in, essentially, um, onto a course the following year. Um, so it was kind of a, it was a bit of a pause year in a way. It was like, I mean, I can't remember what I coxed at Henley that year. I think it was another ladies' plate eight, but not a very good one. Oh, yeah, I was in it. You were in it. Yeah, That's yeah. right. It was not so, a very good ladies' plate 2010, eight, yeah. yeah. So what happened, it was a bit of... Um, it was like a thrown together last a bit minute. Of, kind yeah, of thing, yeah. It? And then I'd been injured. I'd had a back... Yeah. I'd been out. Literally, my back went in January Bagnolos and yeah. I got back to rowing in summer Bagnolos yeah. and dropped in that eight. And we had a great time. It was fun. We had yeah. such fun. We were, Who else was in that boat? Like Pad, Padmore. Yeah. The, um, uh, Robin Dow. Robin Dow. Who yeah. we had, who yeah, was, great. you know, what a legend. Yeah. Rest in peace. Webby in that boat? No. Uh, Webby's ankle had gone the year before. Uh, we had... Uh, we had the German guy, Seb. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now does, like, gymnastics. Does he? Yeah. And I we had... on Facebook. Is it like, Charles, what's his name? The big afro. Oh, yeah. What was it? Charles? Oh, he was sweet. He was a nice guy. Uh, I think maybe John Clay. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a real, it was a real, it was a real mix. mix. Yeah. Um, and it was a fun camp. Yeah. I was just happy to be rowing again. Because yeah. I spent three months on yeah. the bike. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. Did we get done on the, in the first round or something? But I think so, yeah. It was what it was. It was what it was. I think we all learned a bit. It was quite, yeah, it was definitely, definitely a fun, yeah. a fun camp. I, yeah, for me personally, it was. I just loved the whole thing because I was. You were back. I'd spend four months on yeah. the bike on my <laughs> own, and that it's just horrible. And then back, that first injury was pre bikes with any monitors. Oh, so you just know what you were doing. So you just just that's horrendous. Uh, yeah, it's horror. Like yeah. imagine erging without a screen. Mm. Yeah, like cool. every day on your own. Um, I was doing a lot of swimming with Vicky Bryant because we both had done our back. That's right. Yeah. 
So every morning, so like there was only like one hour that was like open okay. session. So it's like six thirty till seven thirty. Yeah. Uh, we'd just be up doing like our aqua jogging. We like we we knew all the names of the, the OAPs. Like, hi Margaret, how are you doing? How's John? Uh, just being you know, doing a little aqua yeah. jogging. She she yeah she saved me from going mental. Yeah, as well. you need that. You need that when you're injured. You need yeah. someone else who's doing the same thing, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I think it was that, and then trying to line up. The following year basically to go um to oxford and do the do the boat race basically and i went in so i was doing a master's course and i went in very confident in that oxford year you know i was the the oppo was jack carlson who had coxed the ice screw the year before essentially so it was him sam winterlevy who was a, a junior he was fresh out of school from st paul's another yeah. st paul's boy yeah uh Hannah Ledbetter, who'd done maybe the lightweights. So those were kind of the main competition. And I was like, wow, I've been to, you know, I'm an under three world champion. I've won Henley. Like, I've got this in the bag, basically. And I didn't. Um, And it was just, yeah, it was a weird year. So I think, I mean, I have, in my head, I kind of, I I mean, I'd love to go and do it again because I'd do it completely differently, both my boat race years. Yeah. I think there were things that, as part of the system, that didn't suit me, didn't help me, didn't favor me. But that's the way these things work, right? You have to be selected for the crew that's in front of you with the coach that's in front of you. It's a different game, the boat race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I thought I was going to be in the blue boat until probably January. And then suddenly I was just not being put in the boat anymore. And I was like, oh, God, what's happened here? And I remember the day that they told us, and I think, it, I mean, from what the guys have said, it was fairly close and it kind of came down to, you know, who they knew better, who they trusted. And I was at the time, I was actually living in Henley and commuting to Oxford. So I wasn't going on nights out. I wasn't around. I wasn't going to meals with them. I, you know, I was kind of quite separate. And um, and I remember them sort of taking us after the outing and saying, they talked to the Blue Boat guys and they were in there for a while having a chat. And then they kind of took me aside and said, you're, you're not going to be in the blue boat. You're going to be in ISIS. And I went up into the change room and I think threw some things around and then came back down. and was like, okay, fine. I'm going to get on with this. And the guys in that ISIS crew were amazing. We had so much fun. It was another another crew where I like we just got on really well. There was a lot of laughter. And I think the thing that was interesting was that if you'd asked the blue boat, obviously they picked Sam. But I think if you'd asked the ISIS crew, they would they would have chosen me. So it kind of worked out. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I was the right, you know, I think the Blue Boat guys were quite experienced. You know, Sam, they kind of liked his energy, et cetera. What the ISIS crew needed to were less experienced was someone more experienced. Mm. And they needed someone a bit calmer and a bit more sort of level-headed, I guess. And so I, it fitted. And we had a great time. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm really close with some of those guys. Like, obviously, I married one of them. Pretty close with <laughs> him. Um, but... Um, like Dave Whiffin, who was in that boat, um, he got married last weekend and um, Alex and I were groomsmen and I did the best man speech. So like, we're still really close with these guys. Um, and loads of them were there, which was really nice. And we just, we would, we were, you know, a real mix. Like um, Tom Watson, who was at Stroke, had done some sort of Canadian lightweight under 23 stuff, I think. Um, you know, Alex, um, George Blessley, Dan Harvey, they'd done a lot of... Um, lightweight boat race boat race stuff and Alex had done some international stuff as well and then there were some college guys who hadn't really done much before and it just 
really came together and um it was definitely one of those crews that was kind of more than the sum of its parts i think um we just really had a fun time and um they really kind of picked me up and put me back on my feet i think because they they really backed me and they thought i was really good and i and and that kind of gave me the confidence to kind of do that race well i think um but we just had some really great experiences and you know i think one was when we had done a fixture against i think it was scullers and we were rowing back the fixtures you know it was really fun to do but then you had to row back from chiswick back to putney against the tide it was often very high so the water at that point was crap and you know it would be a saturday and everyone and then dog would be out and it was just horrendous so you have to get back and everyone's knackered and all the rest of it and we were rowing back and the water was horrendous and we got past hammersmith bridge so we're kind of coming into the last bit of it riding over this water and just oh god this is awful and um dan topolsky was in the launch with sean i think and it was like, oh let's go from chat to the isis guys you know, came over and went guys i you know I just think you're row- you're rowing really well in this in this water. I just think you're you're looking like a really good rough water crew. And we were all like, "Sorry, what did you did you just quote True Blue the movie to us? <laughs> did you just quote your own quote from the film?" <laughs> and like we all fell about laughing and no and like the, he clearly didn't realize. I didn't even really, get it. No, no, we were just like, we were just like why are they kissing themselves? Why laughing? it's in the movie? <laughs> it's just one of his lines. Um. So we just, yeah, we just had a really good time. And I remember we we went out to race and the Goldie crew were enormous. Like our guys, we had a lot of, um, I mean, Tom, George, Dan, Alex were all ex-lightweights. You know, on the whole, our crew were quite small. And the Goldie crew, I mean, they were were like two stone a man bigger than us. It was was a huge difference. And I remember we were going out and we were doing the warm-up, which is, so you go the other way and you go down through Fulham and you're kind of going around there. And um, it's another one where it's kind of difficult to know what you're facing up against, really. But we were quite confident in in what we had, and we um we were we were down there, and I think we were easied and kind of sorting ourselves out. And Goldie turned just behind us and rode past us, and uh, and I heard one of them be like, "Yeah, Goldie," and then a bunch of their babes like slap the water as they go. And I was like, okay, we're going to win this race. Like we've got this. So we went off the start. It was, it, it wasn't a particularly interesting race. We just got ahead and stayed ahead, but we beat them by quite a long way. And, um, it was this, it just, I kind of gave me a lot of my kind of confidence back, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I realized at that point that I wanted to have another crack. And so I applied for another master's degree. Um, and came back the following year and I thought, you know, I, I know how to do this. I know I'll do this now. I need to, you know, I need to do things differently, blah, blah, blah. And I got it completely wrong again, I think. I mean, I got the boat the second year, but I wasn't coxing well. In fact, I was coxing worse than I had the previous year because I was spending all my time focusing on coxing to be selected rather than coxing to make the boat go faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't confident in my abilities at all. I really wasn't confident in my decision making. I mean, that, you know, it was my failings, but I think the setup didn't suit me. Um, you know, I think the coaches, Sean in particular, I think his style was that was one of those that was like, well, if you're not cox, if you're not doing well enough, keep them under pressure or like keep people under pressure. So I never felt secure in my seat. Mm. And actually, the best coxing I've ever done is when I am happy that I'm not going to be replaced and I can just focus on making the boat go faster. I don't have to think about selection. 
which is why I think I did well. Like I was the best coxing by far I ever did was in 2016 because I knew I was in the boat. And so I was always worried that I was going to lose my seat. What would you say is the difference then? But like, what were you changing as a coxswain being? I think I was just, I was trying to impress people. So I was spending my time thinking about, oh, what's a cool sounding call I can make? Like, how can I impress people? And I wasn't actually thinking, is what I'm doing making the boat go faster? Am I, you know, am I doing the best job I can do to add boat speed, not just to be picked? Um, And I think, like I say, the sort of lack of confidence was a huge issue because I really doubted my my decision making and you know, I kind of made a lot of poor decisions because I think I just didn't trust my own mind, essentially. Um, but obviously I was selected and I remember feeling really unsettled and uneasy about it. And again, we had a big weight deficit. And I remember Sean, after our weigh-in, Sean um, basically said to us, he's like, right, well, you're either going to overturn the biggest weight deficit in boat race history or you're going to be children crushed by giants. You're like, thanks, Sean. Another, another great, great short Valden quote. But, um, you know, the way in itself, I remember feeling really, again, un, sort of just, just totally lacking confidence. And I think one of the things that sounds really insignificant, but looking back on it, I think was really a powerful factor in that was the fact that we all got given our all-in-ones to wear to the weigh-in. And I got, and bear in mind, I was tiny at the time. I weighed like 48 kilos. I would wear a women's extra small or maybe small all-in-one. And I was given a men's medium because they were like, well, that's what we've got. We don't have any women's smalls because we haven't ordered any because we haven't had a woman coxing our blue boat in. Oh, yeah. I think it was like well over a decade or something. So I was given this men's medium and I put it on and I remember it was hanging down. Like you could see all of my sports bra underneath. I was like, I can't, stand up in front of the media wearing this like this is I can't like this is this is just awful and Barbara who was the administrator said I just I, I don't have there's nothing we can do and bless him like my my um ex Andrew he was a very handy guy and he was like I reckon I can take it up so he like took it up sewed it like unpicked it sewed the shoulders up and sewed the sides like together to make it at least not hang off me but you can see like looking back on the photos you can see that like the exchanging logo is like stretched right around my body because he's like picked the whole thing around um but i remember that feeling of just feeling so uncomfortable and thinking like i don't really belong here and mm. at the time Hackett were the kit sponsor and they make men's clothes so they were like well we can't give you a pair of chinos to match the crew because we don't make women's clothes so you just have to find something that looks roughly the same so I was like, I had to go to the shops and pick something out. And they gave me the Hackett jumper, which again was like a men's small, which was like drowning me. I just remember standing there feeling so uncomfortable and so like I didn't belong here and shouldn't be here. That's such bullshit from the organizers. Well, this is the thing. And now obviously things are different because now they've got the women as well. So you wouldn't, I think you wouldn't get this, you know, the same thing. But um, this was when it was just the men's cruise on the tideway and I just remember thinking like this, I feel like I don't belong. There's that whole, that's a very old school attitude of like, there's eight, there's eight people in this boat. Like, mm. There's eight, there's eight. It's all about the eight. No, it's nine. Well, yeah. It's nine. And actually, if there's going to be a ninth, it's going to be a guy. Yeah. It's going to be a man. Yeah. So, okay, you know, the men's coxes all had clothes that fit them, but I didn't basically. And I just, yeah. And, you know, this is not, none of this is an excuse for what happened on the race, but it, I just feel like I was set up, you know, I had set myself up so badly for that race day. And on the day, I was standing on the balcony at Westminster and Dan Polsky came over to me and started just like unloading on me, just like, 
oh, remember to do this, remember to do that, think about this, think about that. And I was like, this guy does not trust me. And again, I just went into that race just so unsettled and so, yeah, just lacking in confidence, I think. And the race, I mean, again, I used planked out a lot of that race in my memory, but the bits I remember is I remember going, I remember that we, we, I remember coming out of Hammersmith Bridge, basically, and coming towards the Ayat and essentially Cambridge having used up almost all of their advantage and we were level, we were dead level with them. And the last call I made before the race stopped was I remember saying to the guys, we're dead level, they've used up their advantage, we're going to win this race. And then like all hell breaks loose, basically. Yeah. So this is 2012 and this is the year that Trenton, I'm not even going to say his whole name, that guy, he cost me a lot of money. <laughs> he cost a lot of people a lot of money. <laughs> uh, jumped in, jumped in for some bullshit um, cause. No one even remembers why. Um, and stopped the whole race. Mm. So yeah, literally at about halfway, the yeah. point at which you were going to take it. Um, Ooh, yeah, I think so. Cambridge will tell you opposite, but we think so. Okay, so the reason why I lost a man a lot of money that year was that was the first time the Leanne crew raced both Cambridge mm. and Oxford. And we beat Cambridge in one of our pieces, and you backdoored us. Yeah. Like, you, we, you were gone. So now I was yeah. like, well, I'm putting some money on this. Yes. Um, and so, the odds and the odds were against us because we were so much lighter than them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the odds were good. So obviously, like, that that's just mm-hmm. absolute kind of like, oh, expect the unexpected, mm-hmm. but that is not it's ever the, been it's part of the plan. No, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I remember, because there'd been a lot of rain, so there was a lot of debris in the water, and we talked a lot about, oh, what happens if something comes down? The umpires might have to steer us around it. Well, you know, the race will keep going as much as possible, blah, blah, blah. And I remember seeing, and we'd hit a, we'd hit a fridge, like two or three days before okay. it was floating underwater so I hadn't seen it yeah, yeah. and then the the um, fin like right up because it just rang right over the top of it so there's all sorts of stuff in the river who puts a fridge in the river <laughs> <laughs> it's we the saw a fr- way. in the in the week and a half before we saw a fridge a fully upholstered sofa and a painting an oil painting floating <laughs> down the river <laughs> it was just so weird it was bizarre I saw something and I thought oh piece of crap in the river mm. kind of expected that and then i saw that it was moving across the stream not mm. with the stream and i thought that doesn't make any sense and i thought oh it's a duck or, you know you kind of you fill in the blanks with what you expect to see right so i expect the debris wasn't that so it's something alive it must be a bird of some description and then i saw that it was a person and i was like some drunk guys falling in the river like and then i realized it was rowing into the park it was row was moving into the park and it wasn't until quite late on that I realized that on our trajectory, we were going to smash this guy in the head and probably kill him if we hit him. Yeah. So I obviously stopped the boat and um, we talked about what happens if you have to stop because there have been races where they have had to stop for one reason or another. What's usually happened is essentially they've restarted the race as soon as possible. Yeah. So we were like, right, we stopped. Okay, get ready. Like They're going to restart us as soon as we're past whatever this is. Yeah. And it never happened. We were like, okay, this is weird. What What's happening now? And they stopped us. They turned us around. Well, because then you're in full stream and you just, you're flying. Okay. Down yeah, exactly. Course, yeah. So they're like, we're going to go back. Yeah. And then the whole flotilla kept, comes past. Oh, the massive waves. Yeah. Um, we're like in this like, wildly rocky water. Lactate building up for the guys. Like, we, was, we were stationary, I think, for 20 minutes. Yeah. It was quite a long time really messed with the BBC's TV schedule as well. They weren't happy. Well, they were happy because it was great watching. 
In fact, they were about to, they weren't going to renew the contract for the boat race until that happened. And then they did because they were like, well, that was fun. Ah. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, they turn us around, we rode back up and they kind of got us eventually kind of straight and level again. And I think they started just basically level, which was, I mean, to my recollection, was pretty much where we were. Yeah. But we were very close together. Yeah. It started us very close together. And I just had no control over the boat because the water was still like, because all the flotilla had gone past, turned around, come back, you know, and I just felt like I couldn't control where the boat was going. And we started on a straight, but we were quite quickly coming into a bend. Um, we started off, we had a decent start. They had a decent start. I think we were maybe just edging, but not only, yeah, we were kind of dip, pretty much level. And um, I steered into the bend, got warned, and the Cambridge Cocks, Ed Bosson, like he knew exactly what to do. As soon as I got water steering into the bend, he steered out towards me. Like he made, you know, he, his coxing was impeccable, basically. Um, and my six man's blade basically caught, they had a bucket rig um, on bowside, and my six man, his blade hit, hit one of the blades, hit both of the blades, got caught between. I'm not really sure what happened, but all I remember is like hearing the clash, which is fairly common in, in the boat race, you, you know, and we'd practice for that. And then suddenly seeing half his blade floating down the river. I was like, wait a minute, that's not that's not how these clashes usually like I'd never really seen a blade break like that before. I mean, I've seen blades break when you like row into Temple Island, for example. Uh, <laughs> but um I'd never seen one break in that yeah. in that kind of and I remember putting my hand up and like turning around to look at the umpire and thinking, like, is there something that can be done here? And I rem I mean, my brain maybe spilled it in, but I remember watching him shake his head, like look at me and shake his head, basically. And then it's like, right, well, now we have to finish this race with seven guys. The guy whose blade's broken is what the biggest guy in the boat, probably our best athlete, um, Hanno, who's a you know he'd done sort of German international stuff. Um, and then it was like, right, well, how do we get to the finish line? It's like the last third of the race, pretty much. Um, and I remember him i mean i was obviously still coxing but i remember him shouting and just like i mean he's probably the best cox i've ever heard like he was he was just like shouting at our crew like you know you got like the stuff he was saying was just really emotive stuff like you know about they were heroes for doing this like it was just it was unbelievable and he's trying to move up and down with the time of the boat just to not disrupt things too much and I mean, we only lost by something like, I think it was a few lengths, which given that we only had seven guys, I kind of, we took a lot of pride in that. Um, Cross the finish line and I'm kind of protesting, you know, kind of knowing that this was a done deal. It wasn't going to make any difference. And we're sort of, um, you know, floating through the bridge and suddenly I hear um, Will, who sat at two, I hear him kind of shouting and I'm like, well, kind of ignoring it, trying to talk to the umpire, shouting and he kind of keeps going and kind of peering around obviously it's difficult to see what's going on in the bow seat and I see him like turned around and well, what is he doing and he's shouting 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 and, and then Roll who sat at stroke who was a doctor who was qualified starts like trying to climb over people to get towards the bows and I'm really confused about what's going on and we realised that Alex had collapsed and he was just completely out of it yeah. and the one memory I really remember is that moment thinking very clearly about Scott Rennie. I don't know if you, you yeah, knew Scott. I rode with him once, yeah. So I rode with him at um, at that World University Champs in 2008, in the eight. He was um, an athlete at Molsey and he was like a real up-and-comer. Like, I think 
you know, there's a very good chance that he would have, I mean, he was pushing for the, the Olympic team in 2012. Just, and just like the sweetest guy you've ever met. Such a nice guy, incredible athlete, great friend. And he had, a couple of years before, been warming up on the ergo for a weight session and it just keeled over. And he turns out had an undiagnosed heart condition and he just, they couldn't bring him back and he, he died. And I remember that, I just remember thinking of him and I was like, I don't know what's going on. I can't see what's happening back there. And they eventually got Alex out of the boat and he wasn't in a good way, but you know, he was, he was fine. Um, but it was just like this, the whole day was just this heart wrenching. You just, it, it was just such an awful, horrible feeling. And I remember going to the dinner that night and, um, not wanting to go already receiving emails, like abusive emails. Um, because I was, I think I was the, I had some club position that year, like treasurer or something, so some student position. Online, so yeah. I think, I think, and I had an email address that just dumped into my, my personal account. And I didn't realize people cared that much about, but like emails from random people, emails from alumni. Like I remember receiving one email from a, a OUBC alumni, basically, you know, some old guy like telling me that I'd, you know, ruined this race and, you know, I made these, and like, that's not helpful. No, exactly. And um, I went to the dinner and um, one of the first people I saw was Asa Nethercote. And he had coxed, I think it was his 2004 boat race. One of his boat races, he had made, made in his mind, he'd made a bad decision about the steering. I think someone had maybe clashed and caught a crab or something. And he felt responsible for losing the race. And then he'd gone on to get into the Olympic team, won a silver medal at Beijing. And I remember he came up to me, he gave me a massive hug. And I didn't know Asa well. I'd met him, but I didn't know him well. He gave me a massive hug and he said, listen, the my girlfriend from the time of when I was at the boat race called me today. I haven't heard from her in ages. And she said, you need to go and find her and you need to tell her that you know how it feels and it's going to be okay. Aww. And he was already sick. Like we all knew that he wasn't you know, he didn't have much time left. And um, at the time, I was kind of a nice comforting thing and I didn't really think that much about it. But at the end of the year, when I was thinking like, am I, do I even ever want to get in a boat again? Um, I remembered it. And I was like, right, he did it. And he went and won a silver medal at the Olympics. Like, it, you know, yeah. if he did it, I can do it. Yeah. And the only thing that really got me back in the boat was him and that crew. My crew from like i remember sitting down with them afterwards and thinking they're gonna they're obviously gonna blame me for this and alex was brutal with me and he was like really brutal about some of my coxing about some of my learning but he was like but you're a good cox like if you want to you can use this experience and the guys i remember like kevin baum who was um in the three seat i remember he said i've watched the race and i was rowing so badly in the first half if i'd been rowing better we would have been f further ahead you could have steered wherever you liked like so i take responsibility and it was this mentality of we we win as a team we lose as a team yeah and it didn't come from the coaches i would say or didn't come from one of the coaches certainly that that attitude and um, you know i felt quite isolated in a lot of ways um but that crew like they gave me the confidence to start to go back again and so i kind of had spent a lot of time thinking, do I ever want to get back in a boat? Um, but there was a Europeans, uh, there was a development, a women's eight, a development crew for the Europeans that year. And Crazy. I thought, okay, yeah, yeah I thought, okay, amazing. let's let's give it a go. Um, 
and it was people I knew and people I'd rode with a lot and you know it felt slightly more kind of a comfort thing and we went and we had a we had a really great race and I'd done a development crew for the Europeans for a few years and I think we'd come sixth one year we'd come fourth one year and we went out to Varese and um and it was one of those races where and because there's a lot of races as a cops where I don't think ultimately my coxing has made a difference to the outcome there's a few and in my whole career I'm saying there's a few where I can pick out that say if I hadn't been in that boat we wouldn't have had the finish we had and that was one of those races because we went out I think our heat or rep or whatever we we kind of we were we were looking at a sort of fourth place finish essentially coming into the race fourth or fifth and we said okay look if, if things aren't if things aren't going well um, we're just going to go from go for home with like seven fifty to go or a K to go or something. We we're like, we'll, we'll be ballsy. We'll just we'll just go for it. And I remember getting to five hundred gone, and I was like, we're going to get dumped out the back door. And we and I was like, okay, guys, I know we're not expecting this, but we're going to go for home. And they were like, okay, and we held on and got a bronze medal. And again, that was a, I kind of felt like that call. Obviously, if we hadn't have got a bronze medal, I probably would have been like vilified for. But because it worked. You know, it just gave me such confidence, and yeah. that was then the feeder into kind of getting invited to to trial for the senior team. The following year, I find it's it's really hard with the cox. It's um, you know, the crew wins it and the cox loses it, and it's this. Uh, yeah, I see this mentality in football. You know, <clears throat> the team always wins. Cristiano Ronaldo re- re- wins, yeah. but the manager yeah. is well, the responsible for the, the loss. The yeah, yeah, often is the yeah one it's a, it, yeah. a good example. Yeah. Um, which is really hard for my so thinking from my interesting like what you've spoken about what my question about the that boat racing was going to be um it's really hard for a cox to to um take like ownership and yeah. and like that's one thing that's difficult with each cox novices it's like at a certain point even if you're not 100 percent sure you have to just commit to your decision yeah and that's a really really hard thing to do and so obviously, like from the you know watching the footage, it looked like the move you made was really really aggressive. Mm. But like what you said, it was actually Cambridge being quite clever in making that look like yeah, I think so. aggressive yeah. move. And I think also I just couldn't get out of it. Yeah, I think yeah. that was the problem. I didn't have the whether it was because of how crap the water was, or because of my own ability, or a combo. I just didn't have. I couldn't get us out of the mess. Um, I put us in basically. Also, it's so easy in hindsight to sit there and be like, oh, oh god, like, well, what you know, like. The the broken or the why would you clash or the break the blaze broken? It's like no, there's just like a million clashes. Like yeah. we clash all the time. We practice clashes. Like the likelihood of that happening is awful. So like ridiculous that you would even be considering like oh I can't do this because the blade might yeah. break. Like you just don't do that. Um, so my my what I thought I was going to ask you is like when you've made a decision like that and it's gone wrong, how do you get your confidence back? But actually having spoke having listened to what you said about it. It sounds like quite a lot with it was not being allowed to have the confidence in the first place to then make decisions that you weren't happy with. I mean, the same thing might have happened. You know, if even if I'd been more confident in my decision making, the same thing could have happened. Same outcome could have happened. But I think it meant that I really doubted myself afterwards so that I was on a shaky foundation. So after I was like, well, I fucked this up. Like this was my this was my responsibility and that was my loss. Um so I think the difficulty was finding the confidence again. And it yeah. took me years yeah. um, to get comfortable again, really trusting myself. And partly it was just putting it behind me and like having better experiences, essentially, and making better decisions um, or making bad decisions, but kind of 
then working through why they happened and knowing that I'd do it differently next time. Yeah, I think also like the problem with the boat race is that you only get one chance to like exactly. do it over unless yeah. you choose to come back the next year versus if you have by the World Cup one or two, you've still got the Europeans or Lucerne and Henley yeah. to get it right before the World Champs. Exactly. And you've got you've got opportunities to try things and if they go wrong, you know you can you can justify them. Yeah. You can change them. Um yeah, so I think a lot of it was just about um time and, you know, being able to do things differently and have a bit of having a bit of flexibility. And certainly by the time I got to Rio, because like I say, I felt confident in the seat. I was coxing really well and I felt like I had the support of the athletes to try things. Yeah. And even if they were bad or I made a call that was nonsensical or whatever, it didn't matter. And I could just learn from it. It was such a powerful experience. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I, you know, I didn't have that the whole way through. Like there was one year when Morgan was trialing against me and I was not coxing well. Um, because I, again, I reverted back to that coxing to impress rather than coxing to make the boat go faster. Um, you know, and it wasn't until really that final year. And I'd learned so much at Oxford. That was the thing, but I couldn't put it into practice until I was more confident. Yeah. And in that last year in 2016, it just felt like things just fell into place. Yeah. Because I think like for any, for every cox listening will have made a bad call oh, yeah. and will have struggled with it and will have struggled to come back but like that confidence is so important and then again for coaches listening you know people in charge of programs like whatever level it is like i think that's important to hear that you know you're, you're not going to get the best out of your athletes when when you're constantly testing them against each other yeah. and it's a, something we've heard before jack, yeah. jack was very yeah. vocal about it and like the whole year he found like his seat wasn't wasn't set yeah and uh, same as you, you you you're then rowing to win your seat you're not actually rowing to get better so i think it like it's it's really like impressive like that's the point of having people like you come on like you know yours was because it's the boat race it's quite a public one a lot of people know about it but like everyone's done it yeah. everyone level and you can and if you've never made a mistake you're never going to get anywhere no, exactly either yeah and i think it it allowed me to just i stepped away from coxing to sound cool like saying calls that sounded cool to just being myself and just letting my own bits come through and I think you like I'm jumping again but the Europeans 2016 which is my favorite race of all times um I coxed I just was myself and it was our first race in our possible Olympic lineup which ended up being our Olympic lineup no. really excited about it you know we had Fran Horton who'd just come in who's obviously like she won you know, she'd been to four Olympic Games, already had Olympic medals. Like, you know, we have her. Mel Wilson had now come into the sweep team. Like, we had this crew that was some some people who'd done this before, knew what they were doing. Katie Greaves, Jess Eddy, people like that. And we had fresh people, Zoe Lee, OCB, Karen, who just come in. Um, was Polly in there? Polly as well. And and so we had this great mix of personalities. And we had, you know, it was we were already really enjoying it. We went out to... Um, to Brandenburg, which is where I'd done my junior world. So it was where I'd done my first ever international race. And I hadn't been back since. And and did our heat, which we won. Again, like, fine. I don't think it was a particularly spectacular race, but we ticked the box to go through to the final. And then in the final, the weather was horrendous. I have never done a 2K in conditions that bad, undoubtedly. And we went up there. And I remember, in fact... I can't remember what we were messaging about this morning, but we have a WhatsApp group from that eight. And Fran was making fun of me this morning and was saying something about stupid things I'd said. And one of them was, and what about that time at Europeans when you said you had absolutely no control over where you were steering? And I didn't because the conditions were so bad. And I'm just like, 
all over the place on the way up to the start. So that was just today you guys are still yeah, chatting. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and um, we got up to the start. We were in one of the middle lanes because we'd won our heat and we had the Dutch next to us. And I watched the footage back and Martin Cross, who was commentating for the world rowing, said at the start, there's no way, I don't see any way in which the Dutch or the Brits can win this race from one of those middle lanes because the conditions are too bad. Yeah. We went off the start and we just went off. I mean, we went off at like 31, 32. We just, and everyone just flew off and we were just like trundled off the start. I think at the time we were, we were messing around with trying some sort of full slide starts to try and right. kind of build into our rhythm better. It wasn't what we were going to do long-term. It was kind of part of the learning, I guess. So we kind of trundled off the start, got into a decent race pace, really low rate. And I remember there was bits in that race where I was laughing because the conditions were so bad. But you look back at the footage and we're miles behind, but we look really relaxed. Every, you know, shoulders are loose, like legs are going together. People, given how bad the water is, people, the crew just looks comfortable. And we kind of start going through and we start kind of chugging back through people. You know, getting it and but the Dutch were still quite a long way ahead coming into the last maybe 500. But we were like really catching, and obviously at that point the water flattened down. And because we'd been taking it so easy in the first part, we then our beans were kind of you know, we we kind of had a bit more of a full tank and we start moving through them. And I appreciate that the line's coming up really fast, but we were really shifting. And I I looked at the Dutch and I, I just said to the crew. I wish you could see what I could see. I wish you could see how fast we're catching them. And that's not a cool call. Like, you're never going to sit down and write, oh, yeah, this is a really impressive thing to say that people yeah. are going to remember for all time. But the crew just jumped. And afterwards, they were like, we could just hear how excited you were. And we could hear in your voice, like, how genuine this was um, and how this, you know, this had just come out of you. And we rode right through them and we just got them on the line by not much. Like, you know, we literally got them in the last few strokes. And it set up a whole campaign, and it was just such a good race. Um, and that was one of those one of those races that I think you know maybe if it hadn't have been me, if I panicked about how low our rate was, if I panicked about how far behind we were, if I hadn't kind of given them that impetus to keep going, yeah. maybe we wouldn't have won it. Um, and it was it was just you know I wasn't thinking about sounding cool. I was just thinking like this is literally what I'm seeing, and I just want you to know. Uh, how how good this is um and it was just such a fun race i love like it's my favorite race to watch back because the conditions are just absolutely it's just chaos basically yeah um but yeah. when you get when the conditions get really bad like you, you can't work no you can't oh, exactly uh, yeah it's, yeah like you've done a job there of letting the crew like well then we'll just stay loose and do what we can yeah and everyone else is it's like going for it, you know, well yeah. yeah um it's interesting what you say about sort of almost almost pardon the pun finding your own voice or, mm. or doing it <laughs> just doing it your way um it's another thing like again like trying to cox uh, trying to bring on novice coxes um they don't have any reference points so we'll, we'll start with some recordings of mm. some good coxes and that you know it's, oh hey, but i can't i'm not aggressive like that i don't talk like that I'm like no no i don't want you to talk yeah. like that here's an example of how someone does it but like you gotta oh, do it your way yeah i think this is really interesting because we've got a project coming up in the next few weeks, which I'm not going to talk too much about um, because I'm not quite sure of our timelines yet. But yeah, I've been talking with some amazing coxes and we had this exact conversation mm. about finding your voice. And it's really interesting because the group that of us that are talking all have very different styles. Um, and, you know, I think 
one of the things that my Rio crew liked about me was I always sounded pretty calm. Mm. I was quite concise. I was quite clear with my calls. There was rarely any big drama. Um, you know, a lot of it was just about I, I just wanted to make sure they're confident in doing what they knew how to do well and what I knew they did well. Um, and I think, you know, and, and people have different styles which all work for them. And we were saying that one of the issues we find that seems to affect female coxes, I think, more than male coxes, is struggling to find that voice that is authentic to you. Yeah. And I listen to a lot of coxes' recordings. You know, I work with a lot of young coxes. And one thing that I hear is a lot of parroting of things that they've clearly heard on recordings. And like when Rory Copas released his recordings, Rory's an amazing cox. Like he's brilliant. He's a great coach. Um, you know, he, he knows so much about the sport and, and about how, um, you know, all, like all aspects of the sport. And he released some incredible um, recordings. And then I would listen to like juniors and they were literally parroting yeah. his phrases in his tone of voice. And it doesn't make sense for what yeah. they're trying to do. And I remember in my ISIS crew, we we were looking back at old race plans, old ISIS race plans, to try and just get some inspiration to build our own. And one of the crews a few years before had had some call about um, like bad. They were badass motherfuckers. I was like, well, I can't say that because I'll sound like an idiot if I try and say that. It's not going to work for me. And I think the cops that year had been an American guy, and you know that made sense for him. So you know you can't just parrot back what you hear. And I think yeah. there's some really really excellent um recordings out there of male coxes you know the harry brightmores and um, scott you know um rory people like that yeah, yeah. and i think you know i hear a lot then of, of repetition of that yeah. and it's not authentic to the people saying it and, and, and like i say, i think the women struggle more because it is more it's, you know, more, men it's more men doing it and that's what they hear and it doesn't them in the same way and so i think there are coxes who are struggling to find that and they hear they hear something like well this is a good cox so i should repeat it and it's not about just repeating it it's about thinking why did he make that call why did she say that i love that why you know why does it fit into her race plan yeah. why did he think that was the thing to say at the time how can I take some of that energy, but not necessarily all the, sometimes the words, mm -hmm. but make it authentic to me? And, you know, so this is something that there's a group of us that really want to change and just give people. And I, you know, I do think it is more women to some extent, but give all of, all of these coxes and coaches as well. Cause I think a lot of the stuff that applies to coaches does apply to coaches as well. Just give them the confidence to be authentic in what they say and, um, and have, you know, some, some just, yeah, just confidence to kind of have their own personality and let that, let that work. When I first started coaching, I, uh, I rode it in high level. I have absolutely no problem coaching yeah. at, at college level. And then I was like, oh, but I also have to teach a new cox. I've never coxed. Yeah. Jeez, this is new. This is a new challenge. Yes. And work really hard. And then try and find some of those recordings. And then um, I did... Um, I did the senior men's team for, for Wales this year mm. at home country. So we went out to Ireland, which was good fun. And Morgan did the women's team. Yeah. So we combined that. We had eight recordings of coxes that we decided together. And I'm just listening to the coxes. Yeah. I'm like, this is Morgan. Yeah. You've been listening to Morgan. Yeah. There's like, I, like, and I, she's coxed me, but I've heard her, some of her recordings sort yeah. of as well. And then someone asked me, like, you've, you've 2009, Harry Brightmore. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you can just see it, it becoming there. Yeah. And, um, 
And another one, we listened to one, um, another one from from Henley not long ago, and it was just, it just you could just, it just wasn't coming from within. Mm. It was it was not necessarily bad calls. I mean, the aggression was down. We we sort of commented maybe they'd been told not to to take the aggression down or whatever, but it just didn't feel like it was. It wasn't necessarily bad coxing. It was just weird. It was just something so so strange. It's almost like personality less. It's, it's, it's pre- just like a speak like a preset like plan. A, yeah, yeah, just reading the race plan, and you learn so much from other coxes. That's the thing, but it's it's about trying to fit it. And you know, one of the coxes I learned the most from was Katie Applebaum, who was the ISIS cox in my blue boat year in 2012, and he's one of my closest friends now. Uh, but we decided that year we didn't know each other at the beginning of the year. She'd come over from the US, and we we became friends because so I used to drive my car to Wallingford, and um, because I would then drive home to Henley, I didn't go in the minibus. Mm. And one day she was like, oh, can I come in the car with you? And I was like, she wants to be my friend. And I really, frustrated from when I met her, I was like, I really like this girl. I was like, oh, she wants to be my friend. She wants to come in the car with me. I found out later the actual reason why was because the minibus made her feel sick. And she thought she would be less car sick in the car with me. But it did. We became really good friends. And we used to sit there on the the bus journeys and uh, on the car journeys. And we decided we were going to cox the two boats. So we decided early on in the season, it was going to be us. And we were going to work together. So that it was going to be us, mm. and um, and it was it was, and we were very had very different styles, and um, we talked we talked about everything. We talked about the calls that we'd made in the sessions that had worked. We talked about different athletes and how they responded to things. We talked about you know different um, you know different exercises to use. You know, we shared everything, and it was so powerful because we both got so much better. Um, and there's so much secrecy, I think, around coxing. Like, there's a lot of like, oh, I don't want this person to hear my recordings. And I don't want this person to, you know, know all the drills that I do and stuff. But when you find coxes that work together, it's really, you can see how powerful it is and how much everyone can learn. And I think that's another thing that I've tried to do when I've worked with teams of coxes. Is I've said, okay, well, let's all bring a minute of recording and we'll listen to them together. And people are so nervous about it. Um but you're not going to learn. You're not going to steal everyone's like great calls from one minute of coxing. Mm. Like even if that's what you're worried about, and yeah. I'll bring my own one minute of coxing, which are often really boring. Um, but that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Is like sometimes the good coxing sounds really boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and I'll I'll force them to sit there and listen to each other's, and you know, say about give feedback and take feedback and say what they think they did well, or what they think they could do better, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's always a really good learning experience, but convincing people to do it is so hard. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And also, like, Coxes don't potentially sometimes don't want to share recordings because it gives away your race plan to the yeah. opposition. Like, that's one of the reasons what, why Morgan says on the uh, released one Cox recording yeah. and very, very recently. Yeah. But she didn't used to share them. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad she did because it's like um, another example of like what people can learn from. Yeah. Have you released any Cox recordings? No. And partly it's because most of my, a lot of my recordings are really bad quality, really bad quality. And I just don't like, as in the, the sound quality is bad. Um, and partly it's just because of that reason, like I don't want to release race plans, that kind of thing. Having said that, I think I should, I think I should. And I think a good one, for example, I did, um, we did a sort of reunion race for some of the Rio crew at the women's head last year. And I think that would be a good one to release Mm -hmm. ultimately. There's no real pressure on that in terms of yeah. the race plan, for example. So you don't have any like historical races that you could like release? I have some, but again, the quality is just really poor. 
Um, so I don't know how much people would get out of them. The the thing that I kicked myself about the entire time is that I swear I recorded my Olympic eat. I didn't do the final because I, I didn't want to have any pressure on myself and I didn't want to have an extra thing to worry about because at that time I was using a standalone dictaphone, basically. But I swear I recorded the heat and I can't find the recording. Oh. It's just disappeared into the ether, basically. Um, so I don't have many, I actually just don't have many good recordings. And I think partly it's a technology thing, like just after I finished was when everyone switched yeah. the Cotswolds and and, and the quality's really good. Yeah. And they're all, you know, all your recordings are just there. Like yeah. I was having to make a conscious decision to record stuff. So I just don't have that much good stuff. Um, but I do think I should release that Women's Head one because mm -hmm. I think that's my most recent one. The quality's good, like good enough to hear what's yeah. going on. And it wouldn't be giving away anyone's, you know, because I think Morgan, for example, yeah. would have loved to release the recording from her um, when she cops the um, the parafor at the world. Oh, yeah. yeah. She feels like she can't because she would be releasing their yeah, as well, yeah, which true. is not, you know, she, yeah. like she can't. So Absolutely. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm asking because I, I personally have never been coxed by you, but it would just be interesting to like hear your style and yeah. it's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I should. I mean, I really, I, I should, and I will. I think I just need to find a platform. Uh, when I um, when I messaged you to, to come and do this, um, I said, in it, oh, we can we can talk about whatever. Mm. Um, and I knew you were doing sort of tag. Yeah. So if you want to like promote yourself, yeah. it's absolutely fine. And then I didn't hear back from you. I didn't hear back from you. And then I saw that post that Morgan put about all you talking. Yeah. I thought, oh my god, does she think that I know? Like the like the badly tied. Like yeah. she like who's told? Who's told Tom? <laughs> no, it's actually because I've got a five week old baby, and I like my brain is somewhere else. I just um, like oh god, like yeah. no, I didn't know. I didn't. Yeah, know. yeah, timing. But I mean, yeah, yeah, I think it's still early to talk about. But um, but cool, cool to see you guys. Yeah, together. I think it's just um. Yeah, just trying to support, and and I also do this Chattercox thing, which is me and Katie, um, you know, and that and that is about providing that actionable feedback that I talked about earlier, and you know, essentially people can sign up and have recordings listened to, or I can work with them in a more sort of like mentorship kind of way, or do club visits, or you know, so I do all sorts of bits and bobs with that, um, about kind of providing more of a, you know, and that's a that's something I also do to kind of make a pocket money, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Junior doctors don't get paid that well, as you may have heard in the news. Um, <laughs> so my £16 an hour that I get doing my actual job could do with some supplementation. Mine is whatever the parking is. So and the park, yeah, yeah, my parking, my exam fees, my GMC fees, the petrol, yeah. Having, um, yeah, having spent some time talking about with Morgan as well, I think it's really interesting what she's talking about, um, sort of bringing, maybe bringing coxing into the future or or certainly the way that coaches deal with them yeah. and select them. I yeah. think that's going to be a really interesting watch. What's that space with you guys, I'm Hopefully. sure. Yeah. Um, so we've we've kind of got up to it, but um, in terms of, like you said, you talked about um, 2016 Europeans getting that win, the run-up then from the Olympics from then, how, how was that? That was just um, an easy ride? Or... It was. It was and it wasn't. Yeah. Our crew worked great together. Like I said, we but we worked hard on that. Like we worked really hard on communication, how we talked to each other, how we responded, that kind of thing. Um, but we also um we worked really hard at that, like the communication and stuff, and we worked a lot about how we were gonna um how we were gonna do things and how we were gonna function. And our big thing was we talked a lot about trust and belief. And we talked about trusting and believing in each other, in what we did well in how we trained in everyone's bits that they did you know their skills and things and um 
and it just worked but it was hard like we really did some we did have some difficult difficult times we did a lot where we had to really um kind of like i say trust in what in what we in what we needed we, we did this we i didn't do it i sat on the bank they did some absolutely savage seat racing in yeah. between the second and third world cup yeah um essentially where uh Catherine granger and vicky thorny were thrown into the mix and then we had to go straight to the third world cup and they were emotionally physically just absolutely exhausted and we ended up being beaten by the Kiwis. But And I remember there are pictures from us on the podium. And everyone just looks delirious because everyone was just like, you know, we didn't really care how we'd done. We were just happy that we were there and the crew was set and we were settled. Um, so there was some really difficult bits. Sea racing is always brutal. Yeah. Just and I think, you know, Karen Bennett, for example, like she was sea raced against Catherine Granger. And she, it was the first, she'd been in the senior team the year before in a non-Olympic boat. So it was her first ever selection into an Olympic boat class, and it was Olympic year. Yeah. And she was being seat raced against Catherine Granger. Yeah. And and she she won. She won her seat race. And you just think, like, it, it, I mean, it messed us up, that seat racing, but it also gave us so much, again, belief. You're like, if she can do that, you know, we can do this, essentially. Spoken to Karen as well last yeah. summer. I was at Kavisham. I, I want to get her on for yeah. a bunch of different reasons. Yeah. That would be that would be awesome to talk about. Yeah, how 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 do you go out and perform under that under level? that kind of pressure? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I and I and I just remember thinking, and you know, Catherine, Catherine's an, just an amazing woman, an amazing athlete. But we we used that. We used all that stuff to our advantage. We're like now we've got Karen Bennett in the seven seat. She is a giant slayer. Like yeah. she is here because she beat the Catherine Granger in a seat race, and that gave us so much confidence and like i said belief in each other yeah so i think um you know a lot of that was really it, you know it's difficult but it really um bond it bonded us, yeah. Together, yeah. yeah i can imagine like not every day you get to you get to put your fouls in front of dkg yeah exactly yeah and i just i mean i wouldn't <laughs> stop using that cult the giants there how to get bored of you yeah right? but it was just i mean i think yeah so it was difficult but but we worked really hard. You know, that gave us that gave us confidence. That gave us something to sort of hang our hats on. I mean, everything does when you're when you're mm. building up, right? Like talked about the races enough. you've done, the World Cup races, the pieces in training. Like we had one piece where we'd done a fifteen hundred and we'd essentially been on underneath world record pace. And we always talk about it like, Man, if we kept going, maybe we would have broken the world record <laughs> kind of thing. And you know, so stuff like that that you always know. Just grab hold of anything. You, exactly. Yeah. The funny example we gave with Emma was um if you in the eight, especially if you win your heat, you will go straight through to the yeah. final. So you will be like, "Oh, we only had to race once." We yeah, yeah, race. exactly. We yeah. we've got the benefit. Yeah. But then every crew that goes to the rep will say, "We've had an extra race. Yeah, we've we, had a, we yeah. to use that to prepare." So it doesn't matter what it, it is. You just got to grip it and grab yeah. hold of it. Got to find what works for you, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you know, it's it was it was it was a coming together of the right people at the right time. It was people towards the end of their careers who um, had a huge amount of experience. It was people at the beginning of their careers or people who were fresh, you know, people like my, like myself and OCB kind of, we knew we were only probably going to do one. I, I definitely knew um, that I was only going to do one cycle. Um, so it was like, it just it just fit. And we just, we 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 kind of talk, we, we joke about how, um, you know, the girls make fun of me all the time, but, you know, when they're being nice about me, they'll say that the thing I did well was that I, I kind of knew how to work with them from a psychological perspective and 
the communication stuff and but we worked really hard at that like we did oh, yeah. personality testing where we looked at different personality types what it was about was about how you communicate with different personality types so we you know this wasn't it didn't just happen it was something that we really built and like we really you know made work essentially um but it was just a really it was hard but it was easy it fitted and it was just it was amazing it's just you, it yeah. really yeah you do the work the hard work and it keeps stepping on so you see the progress it's hard work but you see the progress so you kind of got to the last world cup happy that you were all selected then i imagine the the pre-olympic camp having been beaten by the kiwis was a lot of hard work because yeah. i guess did you go into the olympic into those olympic games thinking that you were going to medal we, or what was your aim we knew that we should medal and we had these like we talked about gold medal goals, silver medal goals, and bronze medal goals, which I also talk about in light. I mean, ultimately, if you medal at most Olympics, you could probably have won a gold. I think the Americans were always the crew to beat, right? I think realistically, we knew that the silver medal was our was probably you know where we were at, but we you, you never rule out yeah, winning, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but we knew that we had to get it right, and we talked a lot about making our start faster because we knew our finish was good. And which never seemed to really make any difference, no matter what we did. Um, so yeah, so it was a lot of it was just like trying to fit those pieces together at the end, and um, so that we kind of could show off what we trained for, mm. and like, yeah, just let let what we'd done, how we prepared, kind of all slot into place at the right time, which is it did, and that was the that was kind of how the final played out. Like we'd spent the whole week since the heat working on making our start better, which made no difference whatsoever. And we, but we knew we didn't want to rely on a fast finish. Uh, we wanted to like set a race pace at a middle race pace that was, you know, difficult to stay with. And yet that was a pretty fast finish. It was a pretty fast finish. I think partly it was fast finish and partly, like I said earlier, it was about not being distracted by other, what other people were doing. So it was about knowing that the speed we were rowing, even though we were sixth, was good. And I don't think, there was any point in that race where I was like, fuck it, we're sick, like something's called roll. A lot of what I was saying was just, we're doing the right thing. What we're doing is the right thing. Like we're rowing well, our speeds are good, we're where we need to be. Yeah. Don't panic, just keep doing what you're doing basically. And then obviously we just like dropped the hammer at 7.50 and that was pretty much it. Confidence in yourself and your crew. And yeah. I guess especially now when you've got speeds in the boat I mean, most most crews have got yeah. access you know certainly on race day to a gps co yeah. stroke coach like it's so difficult so difficult at times i guess also knowing that in olympic finals people do crazy things yeah that's and, look, thing. and that's it is not being not being distracted by that yeah, yeah and that also that's true i think in qualification year yeah like, people do even crazier things in qualification year when there are olympic spots on the line yeah and um, so yeah it's it's kind of having those experiences and knowing how to keep your own head and not change what you're doing when all uh, all about you were losing there exactly um so so uh, yeah presumably then you guys sort of felt like you were happy must have been happy with the result that was the result yes you wanted that's the result we wanted and i think that was the result we deserved if that yeah. makes sense yeah, yeah. oh well, that's a that's a tough phrase alex partridge said you don't deserve anything because just because he deserves something doesn't mean you're gonna get it, it. yeah, yeah yes it's in terms of afterwards, you can say based on what we did, it's what we deserve. Yeah, yeah. Like, as a as a yeah out. yeah yeah as an yeah, yeah yeah so, yeah yeah not but not getting ahead of yourself before before that point. And then you sort of knew that was it for you. You had other things to do. You mm -hmm. wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. I had a place at medical school to start, 
about a month after the Olympics, which retrospectively was an extremely bad idea because I wasn't ready. You know, I needed a break. Um, and I ended up failing my first year of medical school and having to resit it, um, which I think partly was because I didn't have, I wasn't ready to suddenly go from being, from doing elite sport to sitting at a desk revising for stuff. Um, so that was really difficult. And then that year that I was, I had to appeal to get back in. They, they tried to get rid of me, but I kind of forced myself back in. And um, and then- Was that, I've been to the Olympics, look at this, look at my medical. I wish, I wish it was. Actually, a lot of their argument was, you spent too much time rowing rather than studying. I was like, I didn't do any rowing. I could literally count the hands. I've probably been in a boat maybe like eight or 10 times in the entire year. I was like, I'm telling you, if I'd done loads of rowing and that was the reason why I failed, I'd tell you because that would be an excuse. Like that would be a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that wasn't the reason. The reason was I was like, wasn't good enough. I didn't do the revision. I didn't get, you know, I wasn't working in the right way. Um, I know a rower I rode with, I won't name who it is, who was uh, pulled over on the motorway speeding by a policeman. Um, and then when the guy started to talk to him, he was like, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I haven't, I haven't been in the country for ages. You know, I've been up the mountains somewhere. So I've been at the, Olympics, like the Olympics. Olympics. And Olympics and he got away with it. That's amazing. Yeah, it worked. I've never tried that. I need to. Um, but I mean, it's it's so difficult to do that that medicine degree, especially because I this grad entry degree, which is a condensed course. And I mean, Alex, my husband, did it, and he's one of the smartest people I know. And he barely scraped through the medicine because he was so busy rowing. So, um, you know, I think it, that's a real—I mean, that is a real challenge. Um, so, yeah, no, it wasn't that. It was just—it wasn't. I didn't—I didn't do it right, and I did get back in to repeat the exams the following year, and then found out I had this brain tumor. I, actually, basically, the reason why I found out was because I lost my student funding because I was technically not a student anymore. So my my student funding was paused and I needed to make some money. So I was doing some coaching um, and I saw this research study. It was like 60 pounds to sit and do something for a few hours and have a brain scan. And I was like, oh, look, that's good. That's a good shout. You know, I'll do that. And then did the scan, got a call that night saying, listen, we've seen something on the scan. You need to come back and have a, a proper medical scan. And they, and you find stuff on these kinds of scans all the time. Like if you both sat in an MRI scanner, they'd find something and it would be insignificant. Probably your back, I imagine. Or, you know, My back is yeah, exactly. done. Uh, yeah, but, I'm um, a bit weird, definitely. But, uh, <laughs> so I wasn't that worried. I was like, oh, okay, it'll be something insignificant or a flare, an artifact from the scan or something. And, um, and the first tip that it wasn't, maybe it was serious or could be serious, was the, um, they called me, and they, they called me on a Thursday and said, we'll, we'll book you a, another MRI. And then they called me back the following morning and was like, your MRI is on Tuesday next week. I was like, they've really rushed that through that. Mm. This is something. And um, they found this big old tumor, which was a, a benign tumor. It wasn't cancerous. Um, but the problem with brain tumors is you have a limited space in your skull. So a benign tumor is going to kill you eventually um, because it's going to expand. It's going to bleed. It's going to... Um, you know, damage damage the brain to an extent that you know it's it's going to get you. And they decided to operate on it. Um, they operated in March, and they actually said that if I'd if it hadn't been found until I'd started having symptoms, which probably would have been in the next couple of years, it probably would have been inoperable by the point the point they found it. And the operation that they said would take four to six hours ended up taking thirteen because it was much more. Um, so sort of, uh, it had a lot more blood vessels than they thought. They had to like really just spend a long time just like delicately picking away at it, basically. Wow. So it was just like, I mean, it was really lucky. The whole thing was just a, a real, 
It was an example of there's a reason why things happen. Like if I hadn't failed my first year of medical school, it wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Um, so I think it just, yeah, I mean, it was great luck and it gave me a really good insight into being a patient, which I think is a doctor has been yeah. quite did you have any sort of recovery path coming back from this? Did that affect anything? At yeah, all? I mean, I was I was exhausted for a long time. I remember not being, you know, just walking down the down the street to the shops was like a like a trial basically. Um, sleeping was really hard because the cut was up the back of my sort of up the back of my neck and into my skull, and so I couldn't get comfortable. They cut through my neck muscles, so I couldn't turn my head properly. Um, so there was a lot, you know, there was a lot that was was difficult and I was sat in the recovery time I didn't have a huge amount off because I had to then resit these medical school exams yeah so I was sitting at home on my own trying to revise knowing that this chance I had to sit my exams was my last chance and if I didn't get it I would be kicked out of medical school and no other medical school would take me so that was my kind of career an ultimatum yeah. yeah um so I think kind of, so it was pretty it was quite it was high stakes um, the kind of challenge that most most uh, people involved in high level sport are good at exactly, and I felt know. like here we go, and I felt like it was you know that was it. It was like well, okay, I'll just take it one day at a time, and this is what I have to do, and I'll just build build my kind of goals around what I what the what I know I need to do at the end, essentially. Um, but yeah, so they they got most of it out. I then had um, a few years later, I had a a, a gamma knife, which is like radio surgery where they shoot lasers at the the remnant and that um looks like it's worked and has kind of slowed any further growth so it looks like it's hopefully it's dealt with haven't had an haven't had a missed my last mri because mr here was um was 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 uh was in in their cooking and so they didn't want to do a scan on me um but yeah i'm hoping the next scan which will come up soon will show that everything is kind of going in the right direction basically how long ago was that? My last scan would have been um, summer, maybe. So it was I was having six monthly scans. So I was due one. I was due one in December, but I was um, so like seven weeks pregnant. Yeah, yeah. And and then since you first discovered that you had so the, that, so that so that is about five years ago. The tumor was operated on at the beginning of 2018. So that was a big year because we did. So I had the operation. Um, we did this Rosambizi, this um, expedition in in uh, Zambia. We bought a house. We got married, had those big exams. It was all just like it was a big a big busy year, basically. Life happens when you finish rowing, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Same for me. You know, you think you think, well, I'm, I'm spending 40, 50 hours a week of my life on rowing. Take rowing away. Live with something else. Oh, well, first you're like, I'll have so much time. No, you won't. You find things to do. All those things that took a backseat to rowing now need to be done. So, yeah, it happens. Yeah. And then, so obviously, yeah, you said you're doing the Chattercock stuff. Um, involvement otherwise in rowing? Seen you, seen you, are you doing a bit of umpiring and we'll stuff? some commentary stuff when like, I get, get asked to. Um, I've been doing some senior umpiring for, uh, for the Oxford Bump stuff. Which basically I was tempted into because I get to fire a cannon. Yeah. And like there's no other rowing events where you get to fire cannons. So Oh, you get to fire the cannon. Yeah, exactly. Which is much smaller than I thought it was. In yeah, my head yeah. in my head I was like, Oh, it's like a ship's cannon, it's gonna be the size of this room and it's actually like that big. Yeah, that's fun. It's really fun. Um yeah, How did you find that event in general? I mean, were you did you were you involved in it at all while you were at Oxford? I coached well, I coached a bit, bit of bumps racing. I did like the old bumps race. 
because it's no, totally insane. It's absolute chaos. I love it. And if anyone who's interested in rowing should come and watch it because it's just such a chaotic event. It's so much fun. And it's just, it's special because it gives so many people the chance to try rowing. Yeah. Um, who often will never do it ever again. They'll just do it for their like time at university. But people, uh, people just get so into it. I mean, it's just such a absolutely nutty event. Um, but I, think I think great for coxes as well. Great for coxes, but so much pressure on them. Oh yeah, um, yeah. But it's it is amazing, and I think um, it's about finding a way to just stay in touch with the sport. I think, yeah. like Alex, my husband, has been doing a lot of um, sort of stuff more from the medical side, so he does some stuff with Henry Royal, and he's been sort of safety officer for things like the um, the uh, the beach sprints that was in yeah, Wales, yeah. Um, last year so you just kind of try and find a way to like stay connected and and find your niche really um which i think i'm still working on i like i love doing the commentary and and it's and, and doing stuff like you know working with the coxes and things i think is is a way that i feel like i can stay connected and kind of give something back to the sport basically yeah yeah it's hard to find that to find what works you and i think i'd love to row but i'm a sh- ultimately i'm a shift worker so I can't even commit to doing like yeah. a regular Saturday morning because I could be working. So yeah. I think it's um, it's hard to commit from that side. So you've got to find another way in. It's different in general, just like the attitude that's made us all good at rowing is the one that's difficult to control. So it's like, oh, I'd yeah. like to go for one row, but then yeah. one is two, yeah, then and then, then I'm on the ergo. Uh, you're doing a Henley campaign. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. It's so- finding like what works what you've learned that works and it's very cliched like oh sport you learn all these transferable skills but it's true right oh yeah and i think the big one for me and it i know i've talked about a lot is feedback Mm. um i found in medicine one of the hardest things is getting decent feedback Mm. and like quite often i feel like when people seem to think that when i'm asking for feedback i'm asking for a compliment so if i'll say like am i actually doing a good job like am i an okay doctor yeah 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 of course of course course." i'm like no no i'm not asking I don't want reassurance. I genuinely want to be better at my job. Uh, it's so hard to actually get because people are worried about offending. The British are awful. The British are awful at it. Yeah, we're really, really bad at giving honest feedback yeah. or just feedback in general. Yeah. My uh, my wife's Czech. Yeah. So we go out to a restaurant. It's a food day now. You need these people in your life, don't you? Yeah, yeah. but like exa- her exact point is how does the restaurant look? Yeah. How do they know their dish is bad? If I'm like, no, I don't bother telling, telling them out. Yeah, exactly. and it's yeah, it's it makes total sense, and yeah. we're really bad at it as a nation. It's funny though, other people. If you ask for feedback, other people interpret that as asking for a compliment yes. rather than criticism. It's definitely like, and I and so I still sometimes I'm like, I still don't know if I'm doing a good yeah. job. Like, were you just being nice, or did you actually genuinely mean that? Yeah, when like you said, you come from an environment that um, someone's just going to tear like, you a new one. Yeah, yeah but it's, and it's also just like part of your daily life, isn't it? Like. Getting feedback is part of what you do every day. It's frustrating. Uh, as an athlete, or I'm sure as a coach as well, you never want on the turn for the coach to be like, right, three. You're like, oh, oh, damn, yeah. I messed up. But then at the same time, you do you know, you know, do want it in yeah. a certain way. You're like, you're not, but I do want to know. And like, it's... It's 50-50, isn't it? You, it's a it's a constant battle, but there's no progress. So I remember someone saying, I want to know that I'm the worst person in the boat. Because then I know that, you know, everyone else is brilliant and I'm, you know. The best position to be is last. It's the most stressful because, but but then you're rowing with a boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's really good. 
Awesome. I think I've got some um, quick fire quick fire questions yeah. for you. Uh, number one, what are some of your favorite coxing calls? You said that you've had some questionable calls, some cool sounding calls, a mixture of them. I think that Europeans one, I think just like it's not cool. It's just what came out of me at the time. Um, I think it's just, yeah, it, it, it's just being in the, in the moment. And mm. I think I I can't remember like a cool call I've ever made that has sounded good. I can remember the ones that I've made that made had a bad impact probably more than anything but I don't think I've got one yeah I think it is literally just whatever comes out at the time I think that's like just as what you said is an yeah. awesome piece of advice like I don't remember the cool ones yeah so stop focusing on yeah them. I remember the bad ones yeah but I probably should forget them yeah and the ones that, that stick out to you most is like when you were or just authentically being yeah. you I think that's fantastic advice for any cop awesome so uh, one more question out of all the venues that you've trained at, visited, or raced at, what are some of your favorites in rowing? Um, Abyss. We used to go there to for um, training camps, and partly because the hotel was great, and the food was great, and the people were great. And if you just walk down to the lake, and you could go in any direction and go for miles and miles, didn't have to turn around. So that's probably that was definitely my favorite place to train. Um, racing. I, I mean, I'm a tideway girl at heart. Like that's where I learned to row. That's where I've had some of my best and worst um, rowing experiences. So I think that's one of, still one of my favorite places. And partly because it scares other people. It mm. scares other coxes. And I know that like I'm happy there basically. Um, so I think those are probably my, my faves. Okay. Well, at the Tideway definitely scares me. I mean, uh, the other day I was told by a boatman down at the Tideway that he, he's going to let me out in a single if I want to. But I'm thinking in my head like, on the Tideway, I don't know. Tideway, <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Um, question I love to answer is uh, if you could travel back in time uh, to the you that, that really fell, that point in your life when you really fell in love with Ryan, when you got hooked and the bug has caught you, uh, you could travel back in time now and speak to that young kid and give them some advice. What advice would you give them? I think it would be to just roll with the punches, essentially. Like, you know, a lot of people say, oh, what would you do differently with that 2012 boat race? And actually, part of me knows the answers to what I do. But if I hadn't have had that result, Alex and I wouldn't have got so close. We wouldn't have been together. This little noisy bean wouldn't be here. So I think there's, like, everything happens for a reason, right? So I would just say just go with it and just keep knocking your head against the brick wall. And so there were a lot of times it took me a long time to get where I wanted to be. And you just have to keep going. Yeah, you're a product of all your experiences yeah, and, exactly. and your your successes later in your career are as a result of your of your early failures and then no one got anywhere without without uh, without screwing up. Yeah. And then the quote I like is um the difference between a beginner and a master is the master's failed more times than the beginner's even tried. And if you think you're gonna become a master without failing, you've got another thing coming. It's Just it's not gonna happen. Failing and keeping this one quiet right now. I am being punched in the throat, which is like <laughs> So uh one last question is, who are some of your rowing idols or people that you've looked up to during your career? My 2016 crew, um, without a doubt. Those guys, they're just some amazing athletes, people. Um, and it is all the, I think the people that I idolize the most are the people that I've rowed with. My 2012 boat race crew, um, you know, my husband Alex, like some of the stuff these people have achieved, whether or not it's an Olympic medal or, you know, getting through med school while doing the bow race or you know those are the things that i really respect people like um you know like jack beaumont like he's an incredible athlete he's an incredible guy 
you know, John Collins keeps coming back. It's it's those guys, I think, you know, those are the people that I really, I see. And I just think these are amazing, just amazing athletes and just brilliant people to be around. Shout out to both of them. We've had them both on the podcast and we'll try and get that again. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, it's been really interesting to like hear about what makes an incredible Cox and how to overcome challenges that most people probably will not know exist in the coxing world. Because like we said, it's very easy to, to give coxes feedback and things to improve is not always very easy to give them praise. It's also like really good to know like what to give them praise for and what it's actually like from your perspective. So this was great. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. It was great. Thank you for having us and putting up the, the screening. Yeah, both of you. No, that's, well, you know, like you said, you're a vice roll with the punches, you know. If you want to, if you, yeah, yeah. You, you've got to deal with these things. But yeah, no, I really appreciate you coming on. It's, it's awesome to be able to come over, you know, some of our own shared memories, which have been really fun. And um, I think just so helpful, you know, part of why we're doing this is to get people to understand that everyone our setbacks and and the, you know the road to to success is is paved in all sorts of other things and um i think it's advice some really really good advice and some really awesome things that we've gone through and spoken about so and just interesting like there's things things that you don't know it's, it's awesome uh yeah from our perspective if no one else listens i had a great time it's so. nice to talk about rowing for a while and not how many times the baby's pooed today so it's been good for me as well <laughs> well we'll get you back on maybe maybe uh, maybe we can do a bit of a, a coxing chat yeah, and a, get panel. On. a panel i think yeah. that'd be great yeah yeah we've got six mics Perfect. at some point awesome so on that note easy there <laughs> cue the music <laughs>